0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast.
1: You're now tuned into the Pod Awful Channel. Pod Awful. Bi
2: Quarterly Women's Social Club. Days and Convicted. Fool Party Radio. Showcase. The Devil's Advocate. The
1: Projection booth.
2: Awful Flips. Pod Pod Awful. Awful Dot. Dot. Net. Net.
3: Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com booth. would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover.
4: You know this man? Who's here? I'm here.
1: You here.
5: These victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s. 140, 150 pounds. Dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy.
1: How where?
3: A New York City detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night. Is it dangerous? I can't talk about it. How do you know you're going to end up the same person when it's over? An odyssey to the edge of city life.
4: Bartenders are starting to give me some information. There's this uh, name keeps popping up all the time. There he is. The one with the hat. Is that the one that followed you? Yeah. Why didn't you go with him? I don't know. I think you should check him.
2: If you want to play, I'll play with you. He's the wrong guy. Prince don't match.
5: What he sees. Who's here?
2: What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. Right.
0: I'm here. This is stuff going down. I don't think I can. uh,
3: I can deal with it. Yes. Yes. You hear what he experiences? Yes. What he discovers will change his life forever. Al Pacino.
1: Who's
3: here? I'm here. You're here. Cruising. Welcome to
0: the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me here in the booth is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You
6: know, I'm still trying to figure out what color hanky defines me as a person.
0: Also joining us this week is filmmaker Mr. Jeffrey Schwartz. Who's here? I'm here. You're here. This week, we're looking at the 1980 film from director William Friedkin, Cruising. The film stars Al Pacino as Steve Burns, a cop fresh from the Academy who goes undercover to try and solve a series of grisly murders of gay men. The film is based somewhat on Gerald Walker's 1970 book, along with a series of real-life murders. We'll be talking later to Randy Jergensen, the New York cop who served as the technical expert on the film and also had a small role in it. Don Scardino, who acted in the film and Travis Matthews, the co-director of Interior Leather Bar a metafilm project related to cruising and the portrayal of gay sex on screen in mainstream films and I should say before I go any further with this episode there will be spoilers galore I plan on not only spoiling the movie, but spoiling the book as well, so if folks haven't seen the movie, I haven't given away too much, we haven't you know, ruined anybody's experience, so go ahead turn us off for now, go out and watch the movie, and then come on back because there are guaranteed spoilers with this episode. We really can't talk about how the whole thing goes without spoiling this one. So, Jeff, as our guest, I will ask you, when did you first see Cruising and what were your initial thoughts on the film?
7: I think I I saw it years after actually hearing about it. It came out in um, 1980. I was uh, 11 years old. So I wasn't really um, in a position to go see that movie, but I did hear about it. It was around the same time, a little bit after, I guess, The Warriors had come out. So there, there were all these, these sort of really gritty New York, um, violent New York movies that scared me a little bit. Um, I, I lived in Queens, far away from, the, uh, from, from where all those things took place. I started thinking about that movie more after seeing an episode of sneak previews. And it was um, in about, probably around 1982, I was babysitting one night, and uh, Siskel and Ebert did an episode about all the gay movies that were coming out in 1982. It was uh, Victor Victoria, Making Love, all these sort of um, very innocuous movies. But they did talk about some other films, like Taxi, Zoom, Clo, and Cruising, which portrayed more of an underbelly of, of gay life. So, you know, this was, I was pretty young, so this was all extremely foreign to me yeah it kind of stuck with me i i actually saw the movie after coming out and reading vito russo's the celluloid closet and vito wrote um, extensively about that film he was also we can talk about later present for the filming of that movie and uh had to sort of take a position on the protests uh, over over cruising and then years later i was working on the documentary version of the celluloid closet as an assistant editor i would work nights uh, at an editing room right across the street from where uh, Alfred Hitchcock filmed Vertigo, the um, the Mission on uh, on Dolores Street, I-, I got a chance to look really closely at the shots from Cruising, uh, particularly the murder scenes, because these scenes were going to be used in the documentary. And uh, I was on an Avid, and I got to go frame by frame through the through these clips and noticed the hardcore porn inserts in uh, in the murder scenes, and I was flabbergasted about that because this is a a, a, ma- a mainstream studio movie that that has um, that maybe nobody noticed. I thought at the time that there were hardcore porn uh, inserts in this thing. So I don't know The the movies fascinated me for years and I'm really excited to talk about it with you
6: guys. Actually, I never saw it until we decided to do it for the show. And it was the celluloid closet where I saw clips from it. But it was one of those notorious films that I guess I just never got around to seeing because it was it's one of these films that I think lives in lore and legend and people talk about it and oh it's it's all this it's all that and uh it obviously was swept up in in the times with the protests and things like that and um it was interesting to watch it now given that it's 34 years about since uh, it first came out, and sort of how culture has shifted, how culture has changed, how representation has changed. And it'll be interesting to talk about cruising, not only in the film as in, in its own right, but also to talk about those aspects and how those played then and how possibly they play now.
0: I want to say that I first saw this one on VHS years ago. Gosh, my friend Mike Thompson gets a lot of. Uh props on this show for introducing me to to movies I normally wouldn't have seen. When we talked a few months ago on the Sorcerer episode, he kind of turned me on to that film and to Cruising as well. Uh, Didn't promise it was going to be good whatsoever, but he told me that it would be an interesting watch. I really wasn't familiar with the leather scene at all at this point, and seeing this movie was kind of... A little bit shocking for me, but really the word that came out for me the most when I was watching the film was confusing, (laughs) and I think that's kind of a label that has stuck around with this movie, and I think there's a lot of intentional confusion going on, and then there's just also some very bad marriages when it comes to the sources for this film and the way that they're kind of bumped up against one another when it comes to it so we should probably talk a little bit more about the movie when it how it comes together we're going to see a lot of the film kind of expanded upon the first couple scenes or maybe we won't the movie opens with a boat going through uh, New York Harbor, and one of the sailors, it's a tugboat, seeing an arm floating in the water. And this kind of leads us into the police station, and we find out that there have been several cases now where there are body parts, and we don't know who the killer is, and it seems like the police are really very hesitant to even begin investigation on this like they are so overwhelmed with things and they just don't want to pursue this. We go from there into these two policemen who are out on patrol and it's uh the one and only Mike Star and Joe Spinell out there and we're going to see Spinell quite a few times throughout the film but Mike Star is just pretty much in this first scene and they're Hassing a couple hustlers, these uh, two transvestite hustlers that are out there. I don't know. They don't do a whole lot for me, but that's a whole other story. And really, the first dialogue that we get from Spinell and Star, especially Spinell, he starts talking about like how awful women are and how he's going to make all of them pay. And it's almost like he's channeling Travis Bickle in this opening scene.
1: She ain't going to make a fool out of me.
5: Takes the kids and goes to Florida to see his sister. Leaves me a note. Ten years. They're all scumbags. What? They're all
3: scumbags. Who? All of them. You're better off.
0: It ends up where he's got the. Well, they have the two hook the hustlers in the car with them. Start taking advantage of them, and then we kind of rack focus from them to this mysterious figure in leather who is going into a club, and that really kind of opens up the rest of the film.
6: I think that that scene with the cops is interesting because it kind of shows this mentality, at least of the street cops, maybe not so much of the administration when we get into, you know, Edelson, who's played by Paul Servino and things like that. I mean, there's some of that, but it just sort of plays into this, you know very straight, almost like ridiculously macho image of cops, but at the same time they're willing to abuse these uh these street hustlers, these you know hookers in a way for their own ends or their own amusement, like they get off on the idea of forcing them to do sexual favors for them. Otherwise they're going to go downtown.
7: Yeah. And I, find it um, kind of hilarious that this movie that strives for authenticity, you know, the first scene you see these, um, these two hookers, I guess, right out of central casting. I mean, it's, it's, I guess um, I've never seen any, anybody uh, walk down the street in full leather and a blonde wig. It's usually kind of um, the full drag or the full uh, butch drag of of leather, but never a combination of the two.
0: So we go into the leather bar and we get, this very mysterious figure who we only see just his mouth and a little bit of his sunglasses. And he is basically picking up or gets picked up by another guy in the bar. And they go back to the first guy. um, uh, His name is Lucas. He's an actor. They go back to his place and apparently they have sex and we don't really see that. But then we get to see kind of the aftermath where we see this mystery, mystery man going through, some of the guy's stuff, he's just looking for a pack of cigarettes, and there's this whole banter that goes back and forth between them. And the next thing you know, the mystery man is pulling out this knife and talking about how the uh, Lucas, the actor, should be scared. Long story short, he ends up stabbing him several times, and that's where we get to see those porn inserts that you are talking about, Jeffrey, with just, yeah, a couple hardcore penetration scenes as the knife is entering into the back, really not hiding that metaphor whatsoever.
7: No, and then, um, you know, if that wasn't unpleasant enough, I think the first thing you see after that murder is the the body lying on the slab. Is that right?
0: And we get to see the M.E. kind of talking about, you know, the first wound is – you know he didn't know it was coming, and then the rest of these were all defensive wounds, and that kind of gets us back into that cop shop, and we get Edelson being uh, introduced with that, and really it doesn't take him very long at all before he's calling in Steve Byrne, the the, the young Al Pacino. <laughs> I love it. One of the one of the reviews I read of this movie said, uh, "This is Al Pacino before he became Foghorn Leghorn."
7: Hoo-ah! he's looking very oscar isaac in this movie too
0: we get edelson kind of saying you know hey i want you to go on this underground thing and of course he has to give this very explicit dialogue about how the leather community is very different from the gay community and let us never confuse the two please
5: lucas and vincent were not in the mainstream of gay life they were into heavy leather
3: s&m it's a world unto itself
7: I wonder if that scene was filmed before or after the protests started, because it seems like, like you're saying, it seems like it's a very deliberate attempt to, you know, say, well, they're not all like that.
6: Well, I mean, it is a section of the community. I mean, in my notes I wrote down, it would be like saying that, you know, basically all straights are basically defined by the BDSM community in some way. It's like, well, it's a division, it's a part of, but it's not all, and... It's it's interesting. One of the changes, and we'll talk more about this later between the VHS and the DVD, is that there was a disclaimer on the front of the film, which in the new edition has now been taken off. So they didn't bother now 30 something odd years later to continue with the, with the disclaimer that basically says this is a small part of the community and in no way, you know, does it reflect everyone.
7: Well, I'm sure that was a a Friedkin—I'm sure William Friedkin did not want that disclaimer on the head of his movie, which is probably why it's not on there anymore.
0: Yeah, and from what I understand, going back through the old newspaper articles, it seems like that wasn't on there originally, but very quickly got put onto it before wide release. I think it wasn't on there during the preview and and premiere screenings. Edelson wants Byrne to go undercover and infiltrate the— leather lifestyle as it were and it's kind of odd Edelson has his you know the typical policeman's board up you know where you've got the victims and the the shots of them in normal everyday life and the corpses and all this kind of stuff and he's here he's trying to tie together The murder of the actor that we just saw, the murder of this professor who kind of comes into it a little bit later on. He's a Columbia professor, and that kind of leads to the unlocking of the case later on. So we've got the board where we've got the professor and this actor on one side, and then we've got these body parts basically on the other side. And Edelson's already trying to tie these together like, oh, this has got to be the same guy. Even though the MO is completely different, there is no severing of body parts when it comes to the professor or the actor. But here we got these body parts, and let's just assume that these body parts are from gay men, because doesn't that make
7: sense? Well, there's a reason for all that, which is um, we can talk about later, which is the uh, some of the true events that this movie is based on, the bag murders. But I'll tell you about that later.
0: I guess we can kind of go through it a little bit quickly because so much of the movie is basically proving that Al Pacino was one of the worst detectives ever. (laughs) I was reminded a lot watching this movie of basic instinct. And the first couple times I had to watch basic instinct several times at the theater. I was writing a paper on it when I was in college and it took me probably two or three viewings before I realized what an incompetent moron michael douglas is in that film not only does he wear this horrible velour sweater when he's out at this nightclub which makes him stick out like a sore thumb but at one point he actually sees a printout describing the murder of his partner that the sharon stone character has written for her you know her author character and he's standing there just kind of looking at it and it never clicks for him that that's describing the murder of his partner. So anyway, Al Pacino, kind of right there with Michael Douglas as far as incompetent guys, and especially incompetent guys that are dealing with dangerous homosexual killers, or bisexual, maybe, in the ca- case of Catherine Trammell. One of the things, too, that de- that doesn't help Al Pacino, poor Al Pacino, is that he gets some of the scenes switched around on him from the script to the movie
5: well, like Blue Hank, in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. The green one left side says you're a hustler. Right side, you're a buyer. The yellow one left side means you give gold and shower. Right side, you receive. The red one See anything you want. Uh, I'm going to go
2: home and think about
5: it. I'm sure you'll make the right choice.
0: One of the greatest cameos I've seen in a long time.
4: You in the water sports? No. I just, I like to watch. Later. Yeah.
2: If you like to watch, take that hanky out of your pocket, asshole.
0: Now he understands after Powers Booth would have told him, but no. Instead, Friedkin kind of
6: makes him even dumber as we go along well the other thing i thought was interesting is they have a precinct night at the leather bar and he gets thrown out because he's not cop enough and he's supposed to be a cop so who would be better at precinct night right would be a cop no not in this case he's a terrible cop as well at one point
0: the uh hustler who got hassled in the first scene goes in and talks to edelson and says you know these two cops were Hustler were hassling me and starts talking about it, and then Edelson gets very upset, like quickly goes to eleven with this, and it's just like, "Get out of here, what are you talking about? blah blah blah, you want to wear wire? Maybe we can hook these you know hunt these guys down, blah blah blah, and the hustler knows exactly he's talking about the hustler's name is da vinci i think knows exactly what he's talking about you know what precinct these guys are from pretty close on what the names are but edelson wants nothing to do with it and he uses the logic of there are more people impersonating cops out there than there are real cops and then it's funny that later on we get to see an entire room of guys impersonating cops We even get Joe Spinell. I'm not sure if he's in that cop scene, but he sure is in a lot of these leather bar scenes, which is very interesting to me. So we get even a a couple good close-ups of of him at one of the leather bars and then at this tunnel at one point where Al Pacino's kind of hanging out, cruising different guys there.
7: He was busy that year, Joe Spinell. I think that was right around when he was doing Maniac, right?
0: I think it might have been, and I didn't ask Friedkin about Spinell being in Sorcerer, which I'm kind of sad for, because it's always fun to see Spinell show up in anything— so especially where you know the sleazier the better really and
7: he's so sleazy in this movie oh he's got a big sweaty close up in the leather bar too when he when i love the scene in that movie when Pacino is at the bar and and all these different guys sort of parade before the camera and are cruising him and they're they're like cruising you they're you're, you're they're cruising the audience and i don't know maybe this is a little off topic but i don't know who this movie is for to be honest who would want to go see this movie in 1980 really i mean i can't imagine any heterosexual male wanting to go see this movie and enjoying it on any level. And the gay audience certainly is going to be a little bit put off by it too. So I'm not quite sure who this movie is for. How about heterosexual females? Oh, I,
0: maybe I have not taken a poll yet <laughs> <laughs> because there's a tender love story that goes on in this entire film too the love story between Al Pacino and Karen Allen as his girlfriend which is just one of the most bizarre relationships I've seen in a long time. We get a little bit of them being a couple together, even though she's pretty much portrayed as being a pain in his ass right from the start. You know, he's like, oh, I can't really talk about this. And she keeps asking questions. And he's like, I really don't want to talk about this. She's also the bearer of some bad news that his father called. And it's interesting to listen to the soundtrack right around that time when she talks about his father, because there's some really discordant notes that Freakin puts onto the soundtrack at that point. Your
1: father called today.
3: Goldseed.
0: We get a little bit of daddy issues going on in there, and that'll definitely play more of a part later on in the film. I found it very interesting how long it takes for Pacino to show up in the film, and it's even more in the screenplay. Like He doesn't show up until 40 pages in, this character, and he's not a very understandable character he's very much a cipher so again you know to your point jeffrey i don't know you know it's tough to really relate to him as a protagonist at all we don't get very much of his inner monologue there is no inner monologue and there's really no understanding what he's feeling as he's going along here he's very much a blank slate as he goes through and tries to understand this world that he's been kind of thrust into the only real person that he gets that is any sort of, I don't know, Island of normalcy is his um, neighbor down the hall. Who's played by Don Scardino. And he's kind of the, the every gay in this movie. He is the gay man that you want living you know, two doors down. He's, he's the Monroe in this too close for comfort world.
6: (laughs) Oh, Oh, oh. don't be that mean to Ted. Ted's actually nicer than, than
0: he's, he's much more together than Jim J. Bullock is definitely, but he's, I like his character and I were meant to like his character it's always nice when he shows up because he, he's the only person really that I can relate to in this film, just because Karen Allen is basically being put off by Pacino throughout this. The more he goes into this gay underworld, the more he treats her Uh, worse and worse you know he has very rough sex with her we hear the music from the clubs going over these sex scenes there's one part where she's going down on him and you hear the music from the previous scene so it's basically like oh we know what al's thinking about as his girls you know giving him head and there's really no one else for us to kind of latch on to like the uh, servino character is in it so briefly that we're not kind of empathizing with him and then the killer doesn't show up, like the guy who actually plays the killer, doesn't show up until halfway or more through the film. So yeah, it's a really tough film to get a grip on. I guess we can just talk a little bit about how these murders kind of go. The first one we talked about is in a hotel room. The second one is in the uh central park or some sort of parked parkland area in new york the third one takes place at a um i guess it's like a peep show type booth and then the last one and here comes the spoilers is ted so we get to see four murders going on in the film and one uh, knife fight, which is a pretty lame knife fight, but yeah it's it's interesting the way that we go from character to character with these murders.
6: Well, one of the things that I noticed with the killer and it's it's set up in the first scene where you meet we were talking about the 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 killer gets cruised by the the one character that he then takes to the hotel and kills, is that throughout the film the killer is always. In voiceover, but not only in voiceover, you know what I mean? Um, it, it is something that's dubbed later, and it feels rather alien if you listen to the soundtrack, where they'll be interacting with someone at a scene, and that person will have the scene sound behind them. But it seems that the voice of the killer is always very calm and sort of alien in a way, sort of taken out of that scene. And what I noticed is that several other times on the soundtrack when we're introduced to various people— there's a similar thing that's also done. For example, when we meet Ted, and it might just be my perception of it, but it sounds like all of his stuff was dubbed later and has that similar sort of flat, dry, dubbed later aura to the audio. We also get the same thing with both Pacino and Karen Allen's character about an hour and a half into the film, where they both seem pulled out of the soundtrack and placed back in very dry in that way. So it leads you into this place At least for me, psychologically speaking, when you hear that where you're like, okay, is are they the kill? Is he the killer? Is that person the killer? Because we get this similar tone in not necessarily the the presentation of what they're saying, but how it's packaged, you know, like dubbed afterwards.
7: And the voice of the killer that you're talking about, he shows up again later when uh, the guy who turns out to probably be the killer is talking with his dad on that park bench. Or maybe he is, or maybe he isn't actually talking to his dad. But the voice of the dad is that killer's voice. Again, it's really strange, and it's it's almost like um, that this killer is sort of bouncing around into different people's bodies or something. That it's somehow like a demonic possession thing. It's really strange and odd. But you know, I think the reason that you noticed the um, the dub that it seemed like the uh, the outdoor scenes were dubbed were probably because of the protests.
0: Yeah, it's almost like this movie benefited in some ways from those protests. Almost. Every bit of audio was unusable, so everything had to be 80 yard and then getting the extra kind of push when it came to the sound effects when it comes to the leather and the chains and the heavy footsteps and all of that. It's a very interesting movie just to kind of turn off the picture and listen to, because there's a lot of sound work that's being done with this film. And you're right, Rob, as far as the just the kind of deadpan affect that a lot of characters have, and that doesn't help out Pacino either, when I was talking about how tough he is to relate to, because he very much is like a sleepwalker when he's given these line
6: readings, too. The other thing I noticed, too, with, with The Killer is, and it, it's almost a cliche now in horror film, but I don't know if it was at the time, is one of the lines that we get out of the killer in the hotel room is, you made me do this. And just the idea that the killer is killing the victim for transgression. And to me, it seems like a cultural or societal transgression. Probably the killer at the same time is also dealing with its own guilt, being in this situation with this person. And how they're processing being in this gay underground or something like that. So, there's all these different elements that I think we see later in later films, horror films, things like that, that seem to play out, especially that line, you made me do this, that just seems like a, a standard convention of modern horror film, which I don't know by 1980 were they using that kind of line in that way.
7: Well, it's also the implication that the killer is maybe not even gay himself. But kind of hates that part of himself, you know, and that the Pacino character also could be gay, too. And how much of uh, what he's doing and going into this world is for his job and how much of it is actually something he wants to do and enjoys doing. You know, there's a couple of points in the movie. There's the one scene in Central Park in the Rambles where he goes, he cruises a guy and he goes and he follows him and and it fades out. And we don't know what happens when he goes off with this one guy. And then there's the other scene where he lets uh, a suspect tie him up. And then the other cops bust in to arrest the uh, the suspect while Al Pacino was lying there all tied up, hogtied. So, you, you know, and those scenes where he goes back to visit Nancy Allen and he's sort of aggressively heterosexual with her. I want to be generous to this movie and say that some of that was on purpose. <laughs> I'm really not sure. You know, because Friedkin has said over and over and over that he just wanted to make a thriller set in this world, that he didn't want to comment on it or make any kind of judgment about about it. But you can't help but walk away from this movie thinking that he, he was making a judgment about it only because of these murders and how explicit they are and how gory they are and how grotesque the whole movie is. Uh, and it's almost sort of shoving the face of the audience in, in this in, – in, in really, really un, an unpleasant world. So you have to come away thinking like, well, it, it's sort of a cop-out for Friedkin to say he wasn't – he has no opinion on anything that's going on here. Do
0: you know what I mean? Jeffrey, you mentioned the whole idea of the demonic possession, which is funny since we're talking about Friedkin. But the other thing that gets me is just the way that the killer is being portrayed by the actors that the killer has killed. So like the first guy, Lucas, is killed by the actor Larry Atlas, and then Larry Atlas is killed by Richard Cox who ends up being Stuart Richards later on in the film. And then the third guy, Mattino is killed by the guy who played Lucas, Arnold Santana. And then that's when he's outside of the peep show. And then it's Richard Cox who kind of comes out of the peep show afterwards. So it's like this spirit as it were is jumping from body to body. And it's almost like these kind of zombies or whatever. And for me, I know this is 1980, but it's almost like this, you know disease that they're passing from one person to another as well you know it's it's almost like predating the the AIDS epidemic that's going to come a few years later but it's this whole like you know oh you got to be careful with these gay guys cuz they're passing this well, for this one it's this murderous intention from one to another as they go along and we talked about the voice and the voice isn't even the voice of the guy who we see it coming out of later on the guy that plays Stewart's father
3: I've tried to do everything you wanted, but it's never good enough. I've taken it for granted that you understood, Stewie. You know what you have to do.
8: You know what you have to do.
0: And then it's interesting, too, that that voice then comes out of Stuart Richards after he's doesn't look like a hospital, but apparently some sort of recuperation area and Edelson is there and Al Pacino is there which was really weird that Pacino would be there after he just stabbed this guy and the voice that comes out of uh, Richard Cox says
2: I never killed anyone
0: you know and it kind of goes back to what you were saying Rob as far as this whole horror cliche like you know you made me do this and then that voice says I didn't kill anybody you know he's he's innocent of all charges why she wouldn't
7: even harm a fly I and think. then the, the the very last shot of the movie is the killer uh, from the beginning of the movie, isn't it? The very very last. We shot.
0: don't know. It could be. And yeah. Fried can refuse us to say he loves like kind of throwing this whole thing into mystery as well. You yeah. know, Stuart Richards officially, quote unquote, is the killer. You know, that's what we kind of determine as we're going through. There's this red herring at one point named Skip Lee. Who, there's this whole big scene around him, and which gives us pretty much, to me, the best scene in the film. And I think this is why Mike Thompson recommended this movie to me, is the black guy in the cowboy hat and jack straps smacking the shit out of Al Pacino and this other guy. Who is that guy? Exactly, which
6: is what I was saying.
0: Best scene ever, because it just makes no sense comes out of nowhere and it never fails to crack me up but after that after we get rid of this red herring which is horrible because they basically just abuse this guy like crazy in the police station and he's innocent you know it's like shades of of you know some of the police abuse scandals that have come out since then so after that we finally get to Stuart Richards, who is played by Richard Cox, and basically it's a very lucky break that takes us to him. It goes all the way back to the mention of that Columbia professor. They track down some of the people that were in this guy's classes. They give some sheets to Pacino for him to go through these yearbook photos. He sees one guy who kind of looks familiar, and I guess maybe he was in the club at one point and says, this is the guy, and basically starts stalking this guy. It is not necessarily police investigation. To me, it is much more of a stalking situation.
7: Well, I think he also finds out that this guy is uh, writing his dissertation on musical theater. That is really good detective work. That sets
0: off the gaydar right there.
7: He climbs in the guy's window, doesn't he, and starts rifling through all his
0: stuff. Yeah, like a, like a, a Melissa Etheridge song. And that's when he finds the all the leather paraphernalia, the hats and all this, and he finds just a shit ton of letters that Stuart has written to his dad. So now Pacino's character has father issues, and we find out that Stuart Richards has father issues as well. And really, it's like he makes no bones about following this guy to the point where he's like standing outside of this guy's apartment. Um, you know, Stuart notices that his, uh, his window has been messed with and leads us into the park where we get to me, one of the best scenes of the film, as far as the way that it's just very, very creepy. The atmosphere is pretty good. And we get Steve and Stuart, dressed very similarly in their leather outfits and there's kind of an exchange going on as far as you know who is going to take the lead on this and basically it's Steve trying to get uh, Stuart stripped down so then he can see if he's got a knife or not
2: How big are you? Party size What are you into? I go anywhere I don't do anything
1: That's cool. Hips and lips
0: and it ends up that Pacino's character ends up stabbing Richard Cox's character, and then that's the big break in the case and oh yeah, this guy has all these father issues and da 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 da, and you know everything is all set. Then we get a little bit of a um, Edelson talking to Pacino about how he's made, you know, detective now. He skipped all the way over f- from uniform to detective, so that maybe that explains why Steve didn't have a uniform to go to uh, precinct night with. And then we get Steve's reconciliation with his girlfriend uh, right after we see that Ted, the neighbor, has been killed, and Joe Spinell is there. And we've seen James Ramar as the kind of jealous boyfriend. So now we've got at least two guys, and then Edelson finds out that it was Pacino who was living down the hall from him, so maybe it's Pacino. And then we get the beautiful end of the film where he goes back, Pacino goes back to Karen Allen and really kind of says, you know, I I'm home now.
6: I'm here, I'm done with the case, da 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 she starts putting on the leather gear, his hat and coat and all that stuff, which he for some reason still has, and uh, which makes sense in a minute. He's in the mirror, he's shaving, and he looks through the mirror right into the lens at us, and then it fades to the boat on the river. So what does this breaking the fourth wall, looking straight at us, the audience, in this scene mean? Like, Jeffrey, you were talking about earlier, we, the audience, are being cruised at one point in the bar, we now have another shot where he's looking straight at us. What does the shot mean? Well, for me, I think there's several different things going on with this. One is, as you pointed out earlier, maybe he is attracted to this. He's become attracted to this, you know, seedy underside or whatever it is that, that he's been working on. And he can't quite come out with it. He's kind of closeted with it, but he's letting us know that he's, he's interested in that. The other thing could be that he's telling us. That he's the killer because there's all this stuff about the killer being, well, is it this? Is it that? Maybe he's now one of the killers or could be another one. And this was in an analysis that I read and I didn't think about it until that. The idea of them looking at us, meaning that you're the killer. It's the culture that did this. It's not me. It's not a person. It's not an individual. This is why the killer is so sort of obfuscated and not obvious that it's the culture that set up the parameters for all of this to happen, for these murders to happen.
7: Well, if you if you want to look at this movie and, and give it the benefit of the doubt, it, it does seem to imply that this is all, that the the reason all of this happened is because of homophobia and internalized homophobia, and that the killer is is sort of acting out and lashing out at something he that he hates in himself, and that the Pacino characters just can't handle this 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 reality of himself and that he's somehow broken at the end of this movie just by being exposed to all of this so that is he's like homosexuality is contagious. Which, which makes it really, you know, because it's a pre-AIDS movie, it's it's really uh, adds a whole other level to it that was not intended. That there is something stalking this community, there is a, a demon stalking this community, or, or um, a, a force stalking this community that's going to destroy it from within. So that it makes it actually much more of a poignant movie in, in retrospect than it really was when it came out. And I think um, we can talk about the protests and the reaction to it, but. Uh, you know, I, I think that's what keeps people going back to this movie because it because it is a time capsule uh, of, a, of a, a moment in time that that is is gone, and um, and it's also um, you know fascinating from um, film history point of view because I I don't know that there's been a, a movie this transgressive from a major studio maybe ever I can't think of one.
6: Well, the other thing that's interesting when we talk about transgression with this film is that Friedkin recorded a bunch of songs, had the germs record a bunch of songs, and they were considered one of the transgressive bands of the punk era. Uh, I think only one, maybe two, are used in the film, but it's my understanding there was about six or seven that were recorded. And they are, when you look at sort of L.A. punk scene in that era, they were considered the ones who were, you know, this is pre-hardcore a little bit so they were considered a little more out there than what would come uh, around that era maybe a few years later so it's interesting that uh, you would consider the film transgressive when actually parts of the soundtrack would also be considered transgressive for that era as well
0: i would think these guys would be listening to a lot of sylvester at this time
6: yeah that they, they
7: wouldn't be playing the germs in these bars i wouldn't think probably more donna summer and sylvester yeah i think you're right about
6: that the film also seems to fit into this um, this thing, and we've talked about it before, Mike, with um, movies that sort of cusp the late 70s, early 80s. They're still in that 70s mode. And as we come into the 80s and we talk about Reagan and we talk about all that stuff that would happen in the new conservatism of that era, that this film does take a lot of chances and plays a lot with audience expectation and, and being willing to confuse you and being willing not to have it be an obvious film in certain ways that... I think maybe would have done better five years before, but since it was 1980, probably not.
0: So I related this on Facebook yesterday, but I felt really bad. I rewatched this and watched it with Andrea. And at the end, she's like, so who's the killer? And I just started busting out laughing because it's like, well, honey, uh, yeah, that's the question. And, you know, we are given kind of, The killer with Stuart Richards, and for me, the killer of Ted is um, Al Pacino. Which apparently Pacino didn't like at all. Apparently Pacino didn't read the source novel that it was based on. But then there's the whole body parts out in the harbor still. For me, we never really get a good answer with that. And we never do really get to know who is that man in the leathers walking into the bar that we see at the beginning and at the end, this kind of bookend when it comes to that as well. She got pretty angry that I was laughing at her but I was like no 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 there there's there's a good reason why I laugh at your pain in this particular thing I mentioned the whole idea of this movie being confusing at the beginning. And for me, a lot of it comes from the very weirdness when it comes to the sources for this. Um, You'll hear in a little bit when we play back the interview with Randy Jergensen, I was kind of, I don't want to say questioning the veracity of stuff, but I was really kind of confused. Because at this point, when I interviewed him, I didn't know a lot of the backstory to the movie. So when I heard that there was a movie called Cruising, and it was based on a book by Gerald Walker, and that the book came out in 1970, the movie doesn't come out till 1980, I figured that the movie of Cruising is going to be fairly similar to the book of Cruising, maybe just with you know some updates when it comes to different lifestyle things. Obviously, 1970 is pre-Stonewall, so I thought, okay, maybe it'll be a little bit more out when it comes to you know, the 1980 version of Cruising. I didn't realize what other fathers this movie had had when it came to... There's very little of the Cruising book in the Cruising movie. There's a lot of stuff when it comes to what Jurgensen did as an undercover agent, which was kind of similar to what happens in the book of cruising, but really it's from a whole different perspective. It's this whole different case. Really, he starts describing the case to me in this interview and I'm like, that doesn't sound anything at all like what I'm reading in this book. And then there's other murders that have taken place. So Friedkin kind of takes all that stuff and he just mashes it all together into this script And then on top of that, as you'll hear later on farther in this episode, talking to Don Scardino, he talks about how so much of the script changed while the movie was being made just based on the protests, where they could shoot, what they could do. So really this movie has just this bizarre history when it comes to it.
7: Well, the book do- is not set in the leather world, right? The book is the book is. Uh, I think it was it came out, or it was supposed to take place in the mid sixties. But was the book actually inspired by Randy Jurgensen going undercover? I don't think uh, it
0: was. He might think that it was, but I don't necessarily see that being the case because when he went undercover, he was looking for two guys. And it really had nothing to do with what happens in the cruising book. And I guess we should talk a little bit about the the cruising book. The book is very much... You've got three narrators, which is is very interesting. I like the way they go back and forth between the three narrators, and those are the Steve Byrne character, the Captain Edelson character, and the Stuart Richards character. So Stuart Richards isn't this guy who you get at the end of the movie, you know, or at the end of the book in this case. He is right there the entire time, and the Stuart uh, Richards character and the Steve Byrne character. They are so similar that it's not even funny. Both of them are very homophobic, and both of them have people that they live very close to. You've got Ted for Steve Burns, and then you get this guy who you only see in one scene in the movie named Paul, who's hanging out in Stuart Richard's apartment and calls him Stewie. And Stuart doesn't like that because we find out later that it's his his dad's nickname for him. So we have all of these different parallels. There's no Karen Allen character whatsoever. We just get, like, and it's all internal monologue when it comes to both Steve and to Stuart. And we just get all of these different parallels as we go along. And really, in this case, we get to see how Steve can become Stuart very easily. It's not this kind of magic thing that goes on in the movie. It's much more of a building of intolerance from the character. Uh, We get to hear his thoughts when he's talking, you know, to Ted and some of the other people that are around him when it comes to the community that he's in, in the West village. The other thing that's very interesting is that Edelson doesn't have just one guy undercover. He's got 10 guys undercover. And so he's got these 10 dudes that are out there, and he doesn't really make a point of this in the movie, but they do in the book, is that all 10 of these guys look alike, and they come to figure out that the killer is going to look just like that as well. When they find the Stuart Richards guy, they're like, oh, that makes sense. He's killing images of himself. It's not that he is you know, attracted to these guys necessarily though. He might be, but he is killing this image of himself as he goes through. And the moment, the Holy shit moment for me in the book is that we have that scene of Steve Byrne in the park and have this other guy there who looks very similar to him. And he's thinking, okay, this is this guy, you know, I finally, I caught the killer. It's towards the end of the book, you know, you know, something's going to happen. He kills the guy, finds that the guy has this blue mace dispenser thing, which is the exact same thing that Steve has because it's police issue. That was the only weapon that they were allowed to have. And Steve went against regulations, bought himself a knife, stabbed this guy. So he becomes a murderer because of this. And then the murder of Ted later on makes a lot more sense in this context.
7: Well it seems that uh, a lot of the screenplay was aside from the book was inspired by these these murders that um that I was reading about. Um the the, the the body part floating in the water at the beginning of the movie, apparently this this is something that did happen. That in um the late seventies there were a series of murders, uh, uh there were six victims and they were um they were killed and dismembered, and the remains were in pl- black plastic bags, and they were all dumped in the Hudson River. So the remains were, were washing up uh, on the shore. And apparently – I'm not quite sure how the police could do this, but they did trace items of clothing that the, that were still on the parts to a shop in the village that was a gay – that catered to gays. And apparently there were some tattoos on one of the victims that marked him as a gay. I'm not quite sure what kind of tattoo that would be. Actually, to this day, these, these murders were never – solved um but there was another there was another case that seems really close to this movie which was a a film critic named addison verrill who was a columnist for the village voice and he wasn't he wasn't openly gay he was closeted but he did go to the bars and uh he was uh murdered in 1977 he was murdered he was found beaten and stabbed in his apartment and it was it was unsolved for for a while but it turns out that the guy who was the murderer of this film critic was a guy named Paul Bateson, who was an extra in The Exorcist. There was a, a scene in The Exorcist at the at the radiology lab, and there's an extra in the scene who actually really did work at the lab. And that was Paul Bateson. That was the guy who ended up later um, being arrested for the murder of Addison Verrill. And uh, it turns out he was, um, this guy Paul Bateson, was uh, a familiar face in, in the gay community. He, you know, he was hung out on Christopher Street and marched in the Pride Parade and hung out on Fire Island, and he actually worked at the, a porn theater, the big top porn theater, and he would go to all these bars, a lot of the same bars that cruising was filmed in, the Anvil and the Mineshaft and that kind of thing. And there was a guy, uh, a really powerful columnist for the Village Voice named Arthur Bell. He was the guy who was at the Village Voice before Michael Musto was there. He had a column called Bell's Tales, and he was um, uh, really prominent, and people read his column. He got a phone call one night from someone claiming to be the killer of Addison Verrill. This is before uh, they found Paul Bateson, and he said, I killed Addison Verrill. I can't tell you my name, but I'm gay, and I need money, and I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not a psychopath. And This guy, this stranger on the phone, told Arthur Bell the whole story of what happened that he he was at the Badlands bar with Addison Verrill and they started drinking together. They did drugs together. And they went back to the, the Addison Verrill's home. They did more drugs. They had sex. And um, Addison Verrill ended up getting hit with a frying pan and stabbed uh, with one of his own knives in his own apartment. And this was an anonymous call that Arthur Bell got. Uh, it wasn't until um, later that uh, Paul Bateson was was found by the cops. And and arrested and he confessed to the murder of Addison Verrill and he didn't confess to those other murders the cops were trying to sort of since they had this suspect they were trying to pin these other unsolved murders on him so it would make them look good just like in cruising he ended up confessing to the whole thing and was um was arrested and sentenced to 20 years to life and Arthur Bell this reporter went to meet him at Rikers Island and he wrote in one of his articles this, uh, that he it was really similar to Truman Capote visiting Perry Smith, because in this article Arthur Bell confessed that he was attracted to this guy even though he admitted to killing someone that Arthur actually knew because he was at the Village Voice too. Uh, later, Arthur Bell turns out to be the guy who was really the architect of the cruising protests a couple years later. So it all ties together, you know, this movie, the real life story and the movie and the protest they all tie together in this really interesting way. And then later, William Freakin went to Rikers Island and, and met the killer and met Paul Bateson and talked to him about what he was accused of. That, I'm sure, uh, ended up in the screenplay for Cruising. This was while he was writing the screenplay to Cruising, Freakin met the killer. And Paul Bateson was, uh, I don't know whatever happened to him, but he was released from uh, prison in 2004. So, but the, I don't know what happened to this guy. But he's out. He walks among us now. It's really, really fascinating.
0: It's interesting listening to the audio commentary of Cruising that Freakin never mentions the book whatsoever. Never even says Gerald Walker's name. Never talks about how it's based on a book. He'll talk about everything that you just talked about. Never mentions the book whatsoever.
7: He has a selective memory, this man. (laughs) Yes. Putting it kindly. Yeah, Yeah, that's why when...
0: uh, I talked to him for Sorcerer. He was like,
7: anytime, Todd. You know how to
9: reach me. If you need anything more for this or what or anything else, just drop a quarter.
0: You know, when I uh, tried to reach out for this episode, it was, yeah, no, William's not interested or Billy's not interested in talking about this. It's like, oh.
7: He really did get roasted over this movie, you know, and, and he tried to make this movie and, and Arthur Bell – specifically arthur bell when people talk about these protests it was arthur bell who started these protests he initiated them i mean he really had a vendetta against this movie and against william friedkin in particular that actually i think went back to boys in the band which is um was it friedkin's first movie as a director boys in the band i think he
0: had done the sunny and share movie before that okay but yeah it was uh one of his earlier efforts definitely
7: you know, which which also has sort of it's it's interesting to talk about that movie in relation to cruising too, because it's the same director and Boys in the Band is it was uh based on a, a really popular Broadway play about a group of gay men, you know, it was really historic and groundbreaking. You know, but the play came out before Stonewall and a lot of the characters in the play were very self-loathing and tormented about who they were. But at the same time, you know, there there's a lot of great things about that. I love that play. When what, by the time the movie came out, it was after Stonewall, and there was a new kind of militancy in the air. And Arthur Bell was one of the people who was actually protesting *Boys in the Band* when it came out. So I can only imagine, you know, freaking maybe not wanting to talk about cruising because he he really had to deal with um, a very I guess militant minority in the gay community, and it was really um, this one guy who had a vendetta against. Freakin specifically. Actually I found a quote from Arthur Bell. he says, I feel like the godfather of the gay movement. I put a contract out on Freakin's movie and I feel confident that it can be stopped. I, I I can see why Freakin wouldn't want to talk about Cruising because people accused this movie of actually motivating people to go out and kill gay men.
6: Not having that background, not knowing that this campaign was was pushed forward by this guy who was at the Village Voice, as you're saying, I'm just looking at the content of the film. And I can understand at least from three areas why this would be upsetting this film, why cruising would be upsetting to to members of the gay community and it has a lot to do with presentation it also has to do with you know really there's no positive portrayal of homosexuality in the film I mean there's the leather bar and that's basically it. we don't see a gay couple together we don't get a quote unquote normal you know view of it two. There's very few portrayals of gay life and film in the media that was positive in the mainstream at this time anyway. So it, it, it was hard. And then you look at it from the third angle, like you brought up Boys in the Band. One could go, okay, maybe I'm a gay person. I like Boys in the Band. I thought, you know, hey, this is this is good. And then I go see this, and it's almost like he's slapping me in the face ten years later.
7: Yeah, what well, you said is actually very accurate that by the time this movie came out, there were so few – portrayals of gay people in movies, when you did see them, as Vito Russo wrote in Sailor Closet, when you did see them, either it was comic relief or non-threatening uh, or villains and psychopaths. And the more visible gay people became in society, the more threatening they were to, to the mainstream society. So then you end up with something like – you do end up with something like cruising. So I can completely understand why people were up in arms about this, especially that it was being filmed in the village on on our turf, essentially. You know, So – You know, you can compare it to uh, I don't know. It it, it just seemed like it was a it was a slap in the face to the community at that time. And the the community, I, I don't know if the majority of gay people even were aware of this, but there was a very, very vocal group specifically in New York who wanted to shut this film down. And, you know, and Vito Russo, who wrote extensively on these issues, he, he didn't take a position on it. You know, He didn't want – he didn't believe in censorship. He didn't want the movie to be stopped. He wanted he, – he thought that ultimately the movie would be, uh, would be a very negative thing for the gay community in terms of people seeing this and it giving a, a very poor impression of what this community really is. But he never wanted the movie to be stopped. You know, but people like Arthur Bell – did want the movie to be stopped much like the basic instinct uh, protests years later. You don't really see a lot of these kinds of protests anymore. It's interesting.
0: No, I think the last movie we talked about being protested like this was when we talked about last temptation of Christ back in April. So back around Easter, I should say. So, yeah, but otherwise you don't really see a whole lot of these. Now you get fan uproar about casting decisions, but nobody gets politically (laughs) upset about stuff. It's like, Oh my God, how could they cast that guy for 50 shades of gray?
6: Well, maybe it's because the Internet has now allowed us to put the to take the pressure off. You know what I mean? Where if before you would have protests, but now people can write a blog or complain amongst themselves on social media when before you had limited media, you know, in terms of the number of newspapers, TV stations, things like that. And the only way. To really uh, get vocal or to get political on something was to actually go out and protest, to actually go do something as opposed to just complaining on the Internet.
7: Also, I don't think a major studio would ever make a movie like Cruising Now because, I, you know, anytime you have a film by a major studio, not necessarily independent films, but a major studio film that deals with issues with, with any minority, they're, it's, it's going to be vetted before it's even made. You know, so an organization like GLAAD will actually consult with a studio to make sure there's nothing objectionable in the script, which actually might lead to portrayals that are maybe too squeaky clean. So we wouldn't get a movie like Cruising because uh, um, people might be too afraid to put out images that might be perceived as quote unquote negative images, you know, which I think we've come to a point now where you can have um, a movie like you can have gay villains because that's not all that's out there. You know, We just had a James Bond movie where you can argue that that was a a gay villain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think the last time I saw something as offensive as
6: Cruising was probably The Phantom Menace. So the cantina is actually a gay bar?
7: I've heard some theories about that. It's possible. Did you see any yellow hankies there? It's possible.
6: We're going to take a break and play an interview with Randy Jorgensen, who was the technical advisor and also an actor in Cruising.
8: You know, I was looking for a little excitement. But I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus for over a decade, vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, vibrators.com never has and never will and when you use the special code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at checkout you'll receive free priority shipping on any order that's vibrators.com get a little excitement in your life
4: I was uh, a New York City police officer. I was a patrolman. I was uh, sent uh, uh, undercover at a relatively uh, uh, young age to do narcotics. And I was in narcotics, I guess, maybe 18 or 19 months. I never was deep, deep narcotics. I was street narcotics, you know, a buy and bust. While I was doing that, I got a call to the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's office, I was to appear at 2 o'clock in the morning in the Manhattan District Attorney's office. And I went there, and there was a, a chief from, uh, from my job. And, of course, I looked like I looked uh, being undercover narcotics. And they sat me down, and they started the following... Our gay population, our homosexual population, what was happening, you have to understand, and I know you will, that this is early, early 60s. You know, it it is in no way relative as as to gay people today. Nobody hides that. It's not hidden at all. But back then... It was, I hate that word in the closet, but that's where they were. And in that world, there were two killers and the killers, one was a white male and the other was a black male. They became known as the salt and pepper team and the homosexuals truly believed that they were cops. And what would happen is that they would get these individuals in a compromising situation, Mike, and they would pounce on them, put them in a car, and they would drive like outside of a police station. Every word is true. They would drive outside of a police station. And then one would go in and he would come out. And he would say, okay, now I'm going to give you the actual monies, but if you could, you know, just transport yourself back to the early sixties. Okay. That's $50. And then they would keep that individual overnight and actually were brazen enough to walk into the court buildings with this individual who was terrified, terrified and Uh, One would walk into the court and come out and say, that's $50. Then there was another stop somewhere, I I can't recall, and that's $50. So before it was all over with, it was a couple of hundred dollars for them not to arrest him. And most of these people, if not all of them, were either living at home with mom and dad, or they really had good jobs. And this salt and pepper team took them to the bank or they called mom and dad and the monies was withdrawn from the bank. They got the money and off they went. Now this went on for 14 or 15 months. Suddenly, The gay individuals, Mike, they never turned it over to the police for the one and simple reason. They believed that these people were police. They then went to the district attorney's office when one or two or three, it turned out to be seven over a period of time, were actually, they they were murdered. And they were dismembered. Body parts were found in the Hudson River. What is one of the most uh, famous hot spots uh, in New York City today is the meatpacking district. Well, they found body parts back then. Of course, the meatpacking district back then was not what it is today. So I was called in and I was told that I was going to go undercover. And a whole new identity, top to bottom, if, whatever you can think of, setting it up in, a, in an apartment, this, that, learn the lingo, do this, do that. And I was going to go into that world. And I did with everything that I just, uh, I just told you about. And I was living in the apartment. And it was on Bleecker Street, and I was uh, living in a like a studio apartment, and the building had other gay people in it. I actually befriended a guy down the hall his name was don i 've never forgotten that, and Don. <clears throat> And I really ingratiated myself to him because one morning, you know, when I woke and I, I got up and I heard this terrible screaming and fist fighting and it was coming from his apartment and I went into the apartment and he was actually, you know, taking a bit of a beating. And I broke it up and chased the guy out of the place and so forth and so on. So we became friends. Now, I quickly discovered that there were two types of um, – I'm going to say gay people, and it was the gay people that were preyed upon, that were the Wall Street workers, uh, uh, well, I, I never met one that was a bum, well-educated, well-groomed, uh, took care of themselves, and then there was the leather world. And the leather world were all of these clubs. It was t- totally impossible to get in there unless somebody knew you. And they had performances in in that leather world. I witnessed it. They played police with, with, with police uniforms. They, act- they They played firemen. And actually, one night, they actually played Nazis. The swastika, the whole thing on their arm. And this was in these various clubs. And what went on in the club—it—it—it it, it, it doesn't add to this—to uh, this story, which I'm, which I will get to. And so that was the world that I went into. Now I got lucky, and one night I actually saw them kidnapping, because that's what they did—kidnapping an individual off the back of a truck who was in there with a couple, a couple of others. And they actually went in there and they took, took this, he was screaming at the top of his lungs. They put him in a car and I, I had my car. I ran to it and I saw them go to the, I, I, I saw them go to the precinct. And when they went to the precinct, when they went to the precinct, I ran into the precinct as fast as I could. I knew my cover was blown, but I ran in there, identified myself as a cop and said what was going on. And we made uh, we made an arrest. I did not make the arrest because I did not want to blow entirely uh, my undercover, which, uh, you know, it was nine months and I wasn't going to lose it in one night in case this wasn't the right thing. And how this worked was, yes, they would go to the precinct. One guy would go in and ask directions and then he would come out they would go down and uh, they go down to the court and one guy would walk up into the court in front of them up to the front. And he would ask the bridge man, is this part one a and the bridge man would say, uh, no one a is downstairs. And he would come back and each, each place that he stopped, he told the gay individual, okay, it's going to cost you 50 bucks. And today that would be about like a, like a thousand bucks, a uh, thousand bucks a stop. And that's what they were doing. and, after they went to the district attorney's office and his name was Najari, he would raise himself up to be the special prosecutor of the city of New York. And he was the first one, but they went to the district attorney's office and they laid the whole thing out. And it was, they, they suspected it was cops and so forth and so on. Well, the word got back to, to, to the ones that actually went there and out of the seven, out of the seven, uh, two definitely had gone to the district attorney's office. So now that's what you really had. You had, you had these individuals. Uh, not all of them uh, were dissected, if you will, uh, but they were being killed. It would later be called Mike the Bag Murders. Because a lot of them turned up in uh, in in bags in in the, in fifty five gallon drums down in the in the meat packing area, so they were arrested. Um, they were indicted. They were indicted for kidnapping, uh, all kinds of shakedowns and yada yada yada, so forth and so on. But we never got them for the murders. Never got them for the murders. They were given the max. And I was, uh, I was given a gold shield. Now, a sidebar to that story, while I was doing narcotics and when I was pulled in to do that, I also, Mike, was pulled for two weeks and I and along with two other police officers, which I won't name now, we arrested uh, Lenny Bruce in the ArgoGo. Now, it comes to be, and this is uh, like the mid-60s now, so now it comes to be uh, it, it, to the late '70s, and I am now uh, sort of firmly entrenched into. I'm in the Directors Guild of America. I'm in the Stuntmen's Association. I'm in Screen Actors Guild. So I'm really like in in the movie industry, but in no way am I a major league director or am I a, a movie star. Nothing like that at all. And the first picture that I did, I did with Billy Freakin, and it was called The French Connection. And I did a number of pictures with Billy and with other directors that made uh, police movies. So by the time 1979 came around, one day, and it was just like this, one day, I was having lunch with Billy Freakin, and he said to me, look, I'm going to do a story about your exploits because this was uh, covered in Time Magazine and so forth and so on, this was the only cop that had ever gone into that world. They've never done it since then, so forth and so on. So I was having lunch with uh, uh, Billy Freakin and he said that on my exploits that he was going to do a movie. However, he was buying the book Cruising simply for the title, and asked me not to read the book, and to this day, I've not read the book. Well, I got together with Billy Freakin. Now, when you work with Billy Freakin, you you just don't sit down and tell him, well, this is what happened, and there's where it happened, and so forth. Billy Freakin basically needs to see it. I, I've learned that from the other pictures that I worked with him. Brinks, uh, French Connection, uh, absolutely. I, I, I've learned that with the, the Exorcist. So as we start to write, as he started to write longhand at, at what happened, we would go to the locations, which were which still there, but of course they changed. Uh, you know, this was now 1979, not 1970, uh, not 1963. But some of the clubs, some of the clubs were still there operating, but not like, not like it was back in the day. And I took him to all those locations. I took him to the West Side. I took him to the precinct. You name it, wherever it was, I took him there and we continued, uh, we, we, he continued writing. And uh, of course, uh, part of it, Mike, uh, t- a good part of it took place in Central Park in a place called the Brambles. And I took him up to the Brambles. Then I was able to introduce Billy into that present world in 1979. And the people that I introduced him to were able to take him back to 1963 as he continued to write. We began to do the picture. And the first person on the picture, I've said this in the past, was to be Richard Gere. And obviously, I don't know why that that did not work out. I had met Richie, uh, Richie Gere, but brother, I don't know why that that didn't work out. They then got uh, Paul Servino, who was going to play my, uh, to play my boss. And I, I did the best that I could with Paul Servino, various locations, so forth and so on. I met the uh, producer, who was Jerry Weintraub, who today is, uh, is through the roof as a producer, you know, uh, Ocean's 11 and 12. And again, he just won the Academy uh, the Academy Award, uh, 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 I mean, on the home box for uh, his home box show, The Cambalera, you know, with Michael Douglas. And then I was told we were getting uh, Al Pacino. I knew Al Pacino and I, because I worked on The Godfather, and I met Al Pacino there. We were far from hanging out friends and stuff, but we knew each other. And so when I met Al Pacino for cruising, what I did for Billy, I did for Al. I took him to all the places. I I actually took them to where I lived on Bleaker, uh, over there on Bleaker Street. Remember this is 16 17 years later and we knocked on the door of the apartment that that, that I actually stayed in and there were people there and you know could we look at the apartment and this they, they were very very accommodating and I just hung out with Al Pacino the leather, the lingo, the best that you know, the, the best that I could. And I, I, I've learned about all actors. Uh, I, what I've learned, Mike, is that they're a sponge. It's almost like they can't ask enough questions, and they get it, they absorb it. And so, <clears throat> it, it turned out to be uh, Al Pacino, and we went off to make the picture. Well. In the beginning, it was quite easy. I was able to get a location that had never been gotten before, and it has never been gotten since, and that was the morgue. And, of course, I got the morgue because I knew the chief medical examiner, who was Michael Bodden, who was actually the medical examiner, back when these cases were happening. And they were, I learned something new, they were called cuppies. And that is circumstances undetermined pending a police investigation. They actually had them, you know, they were, uh, the bodies were on slabs just like you see. Uh, you know, it was a refrigerator, and, uh, but, but the label out front was cuppy. And that's what it stood for. And that was obviously if you had somebody that didn't have a, didn't have a, a head, well, oh my God, they couldn't live. So that's the cause of death. But that's not necessarily true because that person could have been shot in the head and that would be the cause of death. And w- whenever you go into trial, whenever you go into court, you need the cause of death. And so those were undetermined, and so they were called copies. Well, Michael Bodden was the one that did that, and so Michael Bodden let me and Billy and the crew actually film in the morgue for the motion picture. Now, Mike, what really happens is, is that, you know, a picture like this being made at this particular time where there was nobody whatsoever... And I, don't, I, I once again, I got to use that word. There was nobody in the closet. Absolutely not. Well, there turned out to be, you know, two kinds of demonstrations, loud, loud, vociferous demonstrations against the picture. And there were demonstrations where people. Who actually participated in the picture in some of those themes, scenes, and they were not because they were in it, not everybody was in it, and they were they were protesting against the protesters that they, you know that they didn 't think that this was this was the way to go about it, so we finished the picture, and it was quite difficult, and there were times when uh, Al Pacino was out in the street, and it, even if there was dialogue in the street, the noise was so loud. We would, we we later went into a a soundstage, and Pacino had to, uh, you know, he had to dub him uh, to to dub himself. The picture was released. The picture domestically did not do well. It totally went through the roof in Europe, in Germany, in Sweden, in places like that. In fact, I was invited to one of the openings over there in uh, Germany. However, I, I, I didn't go. Over, over time now, uh, you know, the picture has picked up some legs. You know, they're going to do now a, a Blu-ray, and when they did a Blu-ray, the picture premiered uh, maybe three years ago at a theater on 42nd Street, and it was well attended. Mike, I, I hope that this is maybe what you were looking for.
0: So you said when you went undercover, you learned the lingo. How did you pick up the lingo? What was it like to kind of adopt this patois of what the the gay culture was speaking back then?
4: Let me turn it over uh, like into narcotics. I mean, if you were going into narcotics and you knocked on the door and you said to the guy, I'd like to buy I'd like to buy some dope, I mean, you'd be thrown down the stairs. You had to learn that you know, I, I you know, I, I need a dime bag, man. You know, you you had to learn the lingo. That, that, that there was a body language. That, that, that there's a way to it. You you don't go undercover one day and then and the next day. No, you, 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 you go to school. And, and after I got my apartment down there, I was really quick to uh, just to observe, but I was really quick to avoid because, uh, you know, I didn't want anybody to see through me. I did not. So it took some time, you know, in diners, having coffee. Hi, hey, how you doing this, that and everything else? Uh, I went to uh, I went to various I went to various bars. They were just normal bars, just totally normal, uh, totally normal bars, not that where, you know, gay people go that it's not a normal bar, but totally, you know, all gay. There were uh, were, obviously there were straight people and I was in there and I mingled and. Honestly, in, in about two weeks, I, I, I felt confident enough to know that if the, uh, if the red hanky is in the left pocket, you know, you're taking, uh, if, you know, if it's in the right pocket, uh, you know, you're giving. I knew the signs. I, I, I knew the look and I definitely knew the lingo, but most of all, what you really do Is that you listen that one thing that may lead you to these two bastards so 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 you listen oh gee did you hear what happened to John the other night blah 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 you know they and oh yeah oh no remember you know so yes uh, I after about two weeks I was very very confident to go out into that world. And when I say go out into that world, if you don't think that world is not different than the world, than, you know, like the, 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 the married guy and this and that and so forth and hangs out in the bar and you so it, it, it's totally different. And it's totally different working in Alphabet City or up in Harlem at that time when, when well, those places were nothing more uh, than heroin bags. So yes, I, I picked it up, Mike.
0: Did you always have that kind of listening skill, or is that something you kind of honed, honed when you got into law enforcement?
4: As a detective, you know, you, you you're going up on the, uh, 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 you know, you're going up on a crime scene. Uh, believe me, uh, you know. Uh, observation uh, I don't care how many pictures they you know observation what you see the, the the first thing and what you first hear from the police officers oh this woman said this and so forth and so on yes you know you, that's the way you gather that's the way you gather this information and some of it you hold you know like that's your ace in the hole if you know if you know so you know being born and raised uh, you know in the city of New York and uh, on on the streets as a kid all my life and I, I came from uh I, I certainly didn't come from Park Avenue. I you know, I, I came from uh 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 a poor but honest neighborhood if you know what i mean by that so once i once i became a cop and i i i began mike to work with the police officers that were born and raised in, in, in out in long island i mean they were very very good cops but guess what you know the you know the street the street will talk to you if you listen to it I, they just they, they couldn't do that you know oh they adapted but they they just didn't they just didn't read it that way. They weren't raised there, you know?
0: You must have been scared out of your mind going into these undercover situations. How did you get the courage to, to do this?
4: There came a time when you carry a gun and a badge, you know, of course the badge doesn't fire, and I mean, and, and you got the gun. That takes away a lot of the fear because no matter how equal you are, That person that is equal to you when you first say hello and you first start to say whatever you're going to say and, uh, you know, and he does what he does for a living and I say, you know, just in conversation, you know, yeah, I'm a homicide detective. If you could just look at something that's level, well, suddenly the side that where it says homicide detective, that's gone up one or two notches. (laughs) <laughs> so being afraid, I'll tell you where uh, uh, I, I had uh, 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 not, I, I don't want to go over the top with this, but yeah, I, I, I was walking with my friend Don and we were in the meatpacking uh, district and we were just, we, we were just walking and talking and, and seeing people. And that's exactly what they were doing, cruising back and forth, you know, and I saw a police car go by and I, these were uniform men. And I saw the look on their faces as they looked at us. And by now, I am closed. I am wrapped in this world. I am one of them. And I, it, the way that they looked, they were that they looked at us. I was scared. I was, I was scared. I know what they're capable of. I'm one of them. And now I'm on the other side. If you know what I mean. Yes, I was scared. And if I was scared, can you imagine how they were? They feared the police. The police were not their friends. I'll tell you that right now.
0: Can you kind of describe what New York was like in this particular time, this late 70s kind of world? Because I know it is, you know, I've been to Times Square and these places after Giuliani and after the Disneyfication and stuff. But can you describe what the city was like during this time? In
4: 1963, if you will, I mean, maybe you want to say, uh, you know, uh, innocence lost because it was the beginning of the 60s. And we began the 60s by killing the president of the United States. And drugs, drugs hit white America, and that's when there was a big concern. Oh, my God, drugs. Obviously, the biggest thing that would uh, permeate and and, sort of end the 60s, if you will, before we're going to get into the 70s and disco, you're going to kill the other Kennedy, you're going to kill Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, the demonstrations. I mean, uh, it just was, it, it was under, um, bombings. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. By the time we got to 19, let's say, if you want to say 1979, and we're going to make uh, cruising, Koch was the mayor. And we were, just in one area, we were uh, experiencing over 2,000 homicides a year. So Koch has the dis- distinction of being the mayor for eight years. I mean, it was well over 17,000 people were murdered while Koch was the mayor. And this just seemed to just go by. It just seemed to be a way of life. You you know, this is what we were living with. I mean, the graffiti, if you ever look back at some of those pictures in the seventies, it was unbelievable. And, 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 and drugs. Wow. Forget it. Believe me, forget it. So that was exactly what the city, you know, really was like. And certainly, Certainly, you're going to have an international, uh, you know, if you want to call, let's say, national the United States, it is going to trickle down into New York City, and it's going to trickle right down into the neighborhoods. I mean, yes, I was alive to see uh, a president shot and killed, and in in, in 1972, uh, we we were now looking to put another president in jail, to impeach another president. I mean, wow. Wow. That's all I could tell you. I mean, you know, and by the way, I, I, in any interview, it it gets around to this. You know, <clears throat> President Nixon declared war on drugs. I want to tell you here and now we lost that war. The war on drugs has been lost. You know, no comeback. I don't expect anybody to say anything. I'm telling you, I was there. It's, we lost that war.
0: I've read that at a point you were on something
4: called the Pussy Posse. Oh, God. What is that? Well, in 1964, the World's Fair was coming to New York City. It was coming out in Queens. And what they expected, a million people to descend on New York City over that period of time. And let's face it, you're not going to have a thousand people come to New York City and they're not going to go to 42nd Street. That's where they're going to go. Uh, you know anybody that comes to new york city i mean i am i am married i I am married over forty years, and my wife was uh, b- born and raised in Westchester in a great village which I live in right now called dobbs ferry and when I married my wife back in nineteen seventy three or or whatever it was, the only time that she was to New york City, she went to forty second street so now when you when you talk about all of these people coming in. Well, we're gonna clean up Forty Second Street. Anytime there was a a, 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 a new mayor, he was gonna clean up forty second street because that glorious golden white way, what it had to, what it had deteriorated to was unbelievable. And nothing but XXX movies, a sleaze bucket, transient drugs, oh my god. And notwithstanding prostitutes. I mean prostitutes. So uh, as I say, the world's fair w- w- was going to come and, uh, arriving basically at the same time with the Beatles. And so it was decided we were going to clean up 40, uh, the police department was going to clean up 42nd street. So I got assigned to a unit and you were expected every night to make at least one prostitution arrest. I mean, a prostitution arrest, you could also make what they call a sweep and a sweep would you could take two or three of them off the street, uh, charge them with vagrancy. You know what I'm saying? That was not exactly a prostitution arrest, but it was cleaning up the streets. Now, I never made a sweep because I would totally be exposed. And if I was exposed, what good am I then? You know, once again, this is like undercover pretending not to be a cop. That unit took on the name of, uh, you know, uh, where are you working tonight, Jurgerson? Oh, I'm, uh, uh, you, uh, you uh, people, the guys used to say, well, we're working the deuce. The deuce means 42nd Street. Uh, we're working the deuce. Uh, then it took on, uh, well, wh- wh- where are you working tonight? Oh, I'm working the pussy posse. And that that's what it became known as the pussy posse. I did that for six, uh, uh, 60 days. Everybody took a turn at it. Some guys were not successful at all. But, uh, yep. That's where that term came from. And that's the reason that that unit was formed up. Not because uh, they said, whoa, we got to go clean up the streets. No, the World's Fair was coming. And uh, we couldn't have that with, you know, with a million people coming from, you know, Wisconsin or wherever to the World's Fair. We we, we couldn't have them seeing that.
0: (laughs) Now, you said you've been married for 40 years. Yeah. How did you kind of have that work-life balance? I mean, it has to be hard enough to be, I don't want to say a regular cop, but just to be a cop, and then to be undercover, in immersing yourself in this kind of world, you know, be it narcotics or gay subculture at the time or right. whatever. How do you maintain that balance? What's it like when you come home?
4: When I did cruising, I was not, uh, I, I was not married. However, uh, you know, when I when when I did the uh, when I did the uh, you know the Moss case, uh, yes, I would. I I think the most that maybe I ever stayed away was uh maybe 8 or 9 days uh, and then I would be home for you know a, a day and then and and then be gone again I was living in safe houses at the time all I would do when I came home would be like take a deep breath you know what I mean and I have the kind of a wife who uh, was is probably one of the smartest women in the world you know it it, it was Whatever I was going to tell her, whatever I was going to do, whatever it was, and by no means was she, uh, you know, a, a dummy to these things and so forth and so on. No, um, I've had to live a whole bunch of years, just like my friend, uh, you know, Joe Pistone, Donnie Brasco. Uh, you know, I, I, I've lived under my wife's maiden name. Uh, all my mail is out of a post office box, but I no longer worry about that. I, I, I no longer worry about that. But yes, that's how it was done. And you know when we when we married, it, it was soon after. You know, I was on the front page of the Daily News getting shot. So she absolutely knew, not in great detail, but she yeah absolutely knew what was going on, knew to a degree what was going on, and it works because she made it work.
0: I want to play devil's advocate sure. for just a minute here. So 1963, like you said, homosexuality is deep in the closet. Why was there ever? I mean, this is just—it's a couple homosexuals getting killed. Who who cares? I mean, who actually cared enough to make this a case to put you undercover? Because it seems that's like maybe it would
4: have been easier to look the other way. Very. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, well, uh, obviously, obviously, uh, you know, they themselves—if there was a coalition or or, or whatever—they uh, they themselves cared. And in fact, cared so much and scared so much, they didn't go to the police department. They went to the district attorney's office. Now, when you go into the Manhattan district attorney's office and you have a complaint of this magnitude and this is the district attorney's office, you know, there's no can there, uh, where, you know, where if this complaint came in, maybe to the uh, uh, police station, uh, Detective McCann would handle that. And Detective McCann, obviously, is the can. And a lot lot of that, would, you know, would be dumped, dumped into the can. However, I don't really think that a homicide or, you know, would be, would be shoveled under there. But, This is how that happened. The Manhattan district attorney's office, when they want something done, do you know what I mean? And that was it. And obviously, you know, without blowing my horn, but obviously they thought enough of me, you know, to give me this assignment that in other words, I, 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 I I didn't, if I knew what was going on, that I would go back and tell these guys, you, you know what I'm talking about? So, uh, that did pretty good for me. That made me feel pretty good. You know, you do something like that once, you you can't do that. You really can't do that more than once.
0: You said it was a salt and pepper team yeah, that was doing
4: black. this. Did
0: they both get convicted or yes. just
4: one? No, okay. they, both, they both were convicted, not of the murders.
0: What, what did they get sent up for?
4: Assault, kidnapping. There's another thing when you shake people down for... Uh, uh, extortion, and you know, like the max on every one of those uh, sentences. So, what happened when they were faced with all of that? They took pleas, and and, and that was okay, and, that, and 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 that was okay as far as the uh, as far as the uh, you know, like the court system or the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Absolutely, because you know, it was going to be a very very difficult. To to prove murder. Some years later, I don't know when it was, maybe in 1969, they did get uh, one guy, uh, Avril Farrell. I'm I'm not sure what his name was, and he pleaded guilty to one of the killings up in uh, Central Park that that took place uh, during this time. Yeah, they, they they cared enough to do it, and obviously it cost the police department money. You know, put up an apartment and pay the electric bill and pay all this and pay all that. Yes, it did. And obviously I got paid.
0: So when I look up bag murders and cruising and stuff, I run across the name
4: Bateson a lot. Who? Paul Bateson. I know the last name. I don't recognize the first name.
0: I run across the thing that he, um, that he was charged with slaying a movie critic that was killed in 77. That's him.
4: And, and the movie critic that he killed was Varell. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's him. Uh, that, yeah, that's that. that the, yeah, that's the guy. In all of those cases, that was the only. Uh, that was the only conviction.
0: So, how did you go from uh, being a detective to going to Hollywood?
4: I actually worked on the uh, on the real French Connection case when they wrote the book he came down to narcotics and he was interviewing all, all of us and, and, and he wrote the book. And of course that case just really solely is the responsibility of two detectives by the name of Sonny Grasso and Eddie Egan. I grew up with Sonny Grasso and uh, yeah, they're the ones that made that case. Uh, actually <clears throat> it wasn't called the French connection when we were working on it, it was called the Patsy Fugger case. And that was Patsy Fugger. Who they saw at the Copa. Well, <clears throat> once that case was made and, and uh, Robin Moore wrote the book, well, the book was optioned and they uh, came to make the movie. And the uh, producer of the movie, Philip Dantoni, who remains a friend today, and of course, uh, William Freakin, 29 years of age at the time, maybe 30, and who remains a friend uh, t- uh, till today, they called us as consultants. And I went down, uh, I I went down, and uh, here's another little known fact. The first person that was chosen in the French Connection was Jimmy Breslin, believe it or not. Jimmy Breslin from the Daily News. And of course, uh, Robert Mitchum had his turn, and they, I I don't say that they wound up with uh, Gene Hackman like he was like Larry Last. No, they got Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider, and of course... We hung out with uh, Gene and Roy, and of course, Billy had to see all the shooting galleries. Billy had to be uh, be involved with us when it was a narcotic arrest and so forth and so on. But it turned out to be a two-way street, Mike, because I was just fascinated as to how they were making this movie, and not from the other side as the actors, but what was going on on the production side, And from there, I went to the Godfather, and then from there, the Badge 373. And it was always the production side that fascinated me. And so when I sort of began to come into the industry, I didn't come in as an actor, but I came in like on the production side. And after a few years, and it was a few years, I took the test for the Directors Guild of America, and I passed and I was a uh, second assistant director. And that's the guy that runs around with the papers or, uh, you know, if there's nobody available to sweep the floor or whatever it is. But that's how I got in there. And I rose myself up to be a um, uh, a production manager and a unit production manager, and from there, I went on to you know co produce associate produce and and, and and produce. but it was that fascination of how they make a movie when you get on a homicide Mike when you when you come down into the scene of a homicide, the first thing that you do when you step into that room. And I'll, let's say that it's in a room that, you know, the first thing you do is you look down at that body or bodies and you say to yourself, I didn't do this. And then you start from there. And I got to call ballistics. And I got to call a uh, photo and I got to call the fingerprint uniform. I've got to get the medical examiner. I got to know a cause of death. I could keep you on this phone for 10 minutes of all what I have to do. And every one of those people report to me their findings. And I basically take the thing to court, get an indictment and I'm testifying to every one of those things. Well, I found that on The small movies that I did as a producer, I found that I hired the, uh, the, you know, the the catering company. And I hired, uh, maybe the director picked out the the wardrobe people and stuff, but I hired them and made the deal. And uh, the the carpenters and the drivers and the producer does all those deals. He does all those deals. The only deals that I wasn't doing were the deals above the lines and that were the actors, You know, and if I was backed by the studio, of course, they 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 made that. So I found being being, you know, a homicide detective and totally responsible for everything. And and in fact, you know, the finished product uh, as being a a producer, uh, you know, being a homicide detective is in court, you know, testifying to 12 critics because I need all 12 of those jurors on my side. And so, you know, making the movie, everything seemed to be the same. You know, it absolutely, the editor, it, it it was all the same as, uh, uh, as a producer. Of course, the director is the captain of the ship, but that's how, and it was just, it was just sheer fascination. That's all that it was. It, it, I never thought I was going to make a career out of it. And I, I, you know, a lot of it, I used to say, you're kidding me. That's how that's done. And this is how, yep. So I found that very, very interesting. And as I say, that's how I got into the business.
0: Do you kind of wish you were allowed to carry a gun when you're doing the Hollywood stuff? Do you think that would have helped motivate some of the producers and people that you worked with?
4: (laughs) No. No, no, no. I found that, you know... And I, I found that I would be a co-producer and, you know, I'd be talking to the teams to deal in this and that and, 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 and doing this. And I'm telling you, all the actors, all all of them, we got lunch today at 12 o'clock. Uh, come into the camper and you think I'm going in there and I'm talking about the movies that they were in? No. You know, what is it? How did you solve that homicide? How did you do this? How, that's it. It was always... I was like always the, like the center of attention, only be, not because of my looks or the way I spoke, but it was because of what I did, of, of what I did for a living. So Which officer were you in Superman? In Superman, I am down, and sometimes that scene plays so fast. I am down in the tunnels of when the guy gets hit with the train. I'm the cop down there. And I I worked with that uh, I work with that director I, uh, uh, Donna Oh what a what a class act uh, uh, Donna was a sweetheart and mainly you know w- what I did like on movies like that is that you know I secured air, 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 areas for them and parts of New York city and stuff like that. You know, I, I, I absolutely, I, I, I did things along the lines, uh, uh, you know, along the lines like that, not that they couldn't get it themselves and not that they couldn't do it, but somehow or the other, when a New York city cop is, is there and he's right on out on the street with you and, they, and uh, you know, there, there's just that little, much more, uh, a sense of security or safety
0: you said that you went into these clubs with uh, Billy Friedkin yes. to kind of show him that world, and Al Pacino. Yes. H- how had it changed over
4: the years? Like, what was it
0: similar in any way, or was it completely different?
4: It got more theatrical. It was much more scary or uh, frightening, uh, you know, uh, back then. Mike, I think I think you can appreciate that. You know, that's the allure. That's the draw. You know, th- 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 you know, th- th- that's it. You know. That's why guys skydive. I mean, you know that it's. It, it, that's what it is. Uh, but when I was uh, when I when I went back in, uh, back into Billy, you know, I, I I renewed some you know some of my contacts and so forth and stuff like that. So it, it was much more theatrical. And sometimes, uh, you know, it was over the top, uh, you know, and that was for Billy and and possibly for Al, you know. But they saw through that right away. Bill, Billy and Al saw through that right away. But you, you you could see what it was. But there was there were certain places that were basically uh, off limits, and I had to use. You know, I had to use some favors and stuff along the lines like that to get into some some of those places where we just basically sat in a corner.
0: Well, it must have been so strange, you know, when you were working the case, you know, it was, like I said, everybody was, you know, so closeted. And then Stonewall kind of happened right in the middle. And then, you know, all these years later, you're, you're back at this. I mean, was there... A, More of a, you know, like, had gay pride kind of happened, or was it still pretty?
4: No, no, absolutely. uh, Big time. Uh, Big time. Big time. Like, for instance, before Stonewall, right, we probably could have made this picture without... Without any controversy, now this is only my opinion, Uh, you know, without the controversy, uh, you know, uh, without uh, all what went on, right? But after Stonewall, you know, you you, you had to walk lightly, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you couldn't, uh, you know, there was words you couldn't use anymore and uh, and, uh, there was nothing wrong with that, you know? There, there, there was there was nothing uh, you know it 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 look it was different times it it was different times for me the generation that that changed uh or I'm going to put it the period of time that that changed uh, for me uh was the 60s i would say from six you know people say well the 60s i, I would say from let's say 66 67 you know right up until about 1977, I mean, we just, and if you want to talk about sinking, you, you, do you know that in 1975 that the, the city could not pay uh, the sanitation department? They worked for two weeks for free and then walked away. Do you know that while 2,000 homicides were happening a year, the New York City Police Department in the ever first time of their history, and it's never happened since, uh, they laid off 600 cops, couldn't pay them. City went broke. The city went broke. We were absolutely broke. That's what it was like. So when I say from 1967 to 1977, you want, you want to talk about a fog, you know? Wow. And But going through it, Mike, and I tell this to everybody, going through it, I, I didn't say that it, 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 it didn't seem unnatural or whatever it was, you know, it, it, it's looking back at it, you know, or it was talking to people who weren't doing what I was doing or it, it was what? You know what I'm saying? No. You know, that was it. And to me, you know, there's a saying in the police department that I contradict all the time. They've been saying this for 10 years, maybe more. Uh, Join the New York City Police Department and have a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. That's their saying. And I contradict that by saying, you know, I, I don't mean this as an individual, but I was part of the greatest show on earth. I wasn't sitting in the front row watching it. I was in it along with, along with a lot, a lot, a lot of good cops.
0: Do you know whatever happened to Don, your uh, neighbor from down the way? No, I don't,
4: but I, uh, I see Don Scardino all the time, which turned out to be a big director. And of course, Don Scardino (laughs) happened to play Don, who was, who was down the hall. It was just sheer chance that Don Down the Hall is played by you know Don up.
0: Did you have a guy, a black guy, wearing jockey shorts in your precinct?
4: Okay, so yeah, I invented this. So we'd get a guy in there for a homicide, and but we didn't have witness one. It was just it was just a jumble. I don't want to use the rest of that word. It was just a jumble effing case uh, that unless this guy didn't cop to this, you know, we, we, we were going to have a, a problem. And I never, I tried my best never to bring to the district attorney, you know, uh, a case that was, let's say, unwinnable. That's not fair to the DA, you know? So, I, I'd done this a number of times. So, my partner at the time was, was a black man. His name was uh, Elwood Ambrose. And, we had this interrogation room, and nobody ever got hit, nobody ever got beat, nobody ever got tortured. And so <clears throat> we had this interrogation room, and we would, uh, and, and, and the table was oblong, and I would sit at one end of the table, and the suspect uh, would sit at the other end of the table, and Ambrose would sit in the middle of the table. And we would, Ambrose and I, we'd be talking to him. We'd, uh, come on, you know, but... You, you know how that dialogue goes. And we had a detective uh, that weighed about, I'd say, 260, 260 pounds. And his name was Jerry Leon. And he was a big, big detective, deep voice. And I convinced, I convinced Leon to put on cowboy boots, a cowboy hat, and a jockstrap. And I would ask him just to come into the room and he would just look around, and he would say, my skin's getting tight. My skin is getting tight. Something is going to happen. And then he would leave the room. Well, I'm talking to the suspect, and now, nah, you know, come on. I didn't do it, this, that, and everything else. And the door opens up, and here comes 280 pounds of Leon, and uh, only he brought a bat. He brought a, uh, had this small bat. He brought the bat. And as soon as he got into the room, you know, m- my suspect sat up in the chair, his mouth dropped. And then I turned to my partner and I said, you see that Met game last night? You, you, you see what happened? The, the, I mean, the, how, how did the Mets... It? And he would say, I, I don't know, Tom Seaver. I mean, I thought he had that game locked up. And the suspect would be saying, who's that? Who's this? And he would say, my skin is tight. And this one time, he took the bat and he banged it on the table. Jesus, it was loud as hell. And he walked out and closed the door. And then I turned back and I said, uh, "Let's say the guy's name was Claude." I said, "Come on, Claude. Who is that? Who the Claude? Come on. You, I know you did this, Claude. Come on. You, just give us some help and "What do you over there?" Uh? And of course, that would go on maybe two or three minutes, and the door would open up, and here he would come again. And by now, Claude is backing up his chair, backing out of the way. And then we did the same thing. And then Mike, then would leave. I'd say, "Look, Claude, how much? Lo-? Yeah, okay, man, I did it. You, you, you know, I did it. You know that 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 bitch is gonna say that you, you, you get her. She saw it. Now I even had a witness. He even gave up a witness. You know, and I, I can't tell you how often I did that until it blew up in my face. And what happened was I took my suspect down to court and we arraigned him and the the legal aid said, uh, Your Honor, uh, my client would like to address the court. Well, we've already entered the plea for him. Yeah, but he would just like to address the court. And he went on and he said, there's this black guy that came in. He had boots and he had a hat, and, and 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 his balls were only covered up with a cloth. And he was banging the desk, and the judge is looking, the, the 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 everybody is looking, and I'm standing right there. You know, Mike, I'm going to tell you the truth. <clears throat> the first time that the, this happened more than once, but the the the, the first time that this happened. The, the, the judge sent the suspect to, to Bellevue Hospital, 15 days observation. And you know, like the second time that it happened, you know, the judge looked at me over his glasses, and the, and and the, uh, the you know the DA leaned in. and He said, "Jurgensen, you you got to find something new here. You got to find something new, you know." So yeah, did that happen? Yes. Did I invent it? Yes.
0: We're talking about William Friedkin's Cruising. The film is often accused of being rather confusing. This comes from the somewhat uneasy melding of the Cruising book with the addition of other material. And really, Freakin has no problem when it comes to obfuscating stuff and listening to the audio commentary that comes on this DVD. He's almost gleeful when it comes to not telling the audience about things. And I can kind of understand why he would enjoy you know messing with us a little bit but at the same time it's like sometimes i think maybe he didn't know what he was doing i don't know is that too harsh
7: i think you're probably right about that i think it just got it got out of control at some point it kind of went off the rails at some point i don't i don't think a, a star like al pacino would have signed up for a movie this uh, uh, obscure you know, that the plot is so obscure and the motivations are so obscure. I mean, I, I just have to think that a lot of it was made up or uh, sort of messed around with in the editing room or years and years after the fact. He could say, well, that's what I meant to do. Or in fact, whereas, in fact, it's it's just a sort of a muddled plot.
6: Ooh, ah. One of the things that comes across to me watching the documentary that's on the DVD is that and, and we talked a little bit about this before, was that Friedkin says at one point he goes,
3: it was about murders in gay bars in new york but it had been dated this book it had come out a few years earlier and by then the situation of the bars had completely changed they went underground and became heavy leather sort of sadomasochistic bars and i thought that walker's book didn't capture that and so i had no interest in it the book did not reflect what i knew was the emerging uh, gay situation in New York City. And then I started to read a, a series of articles about what was happening in the leather bars and how dangerous the situation had become. A series of mysterious deaths that occurred in these bars. And that piqued my interest. The leather bars would be a, a really interesting background for a murder mystery, like cruising. And
6: I then set out to find out as much as I could. And I was like, what? And I was just confused by this statement that he makes in in the making of documentary to basically say that I took it from regular gays to the to the leather underworld because that's where the homosexual community was going. And it's like no I think if anything leather was coming out because more people were coming out and this was being accepted as a part of the total culture it wasn't the totality of the culture it was an aspect of the culture and in that interview it almost sounded like he was saying yeah all all gay men were going to leather bars which couldn't be further from the truth.
7: Well that's why I was wondering when we were talking before about who who is this movie for because by I guess by the by 1980 gay porn had become I, I wouldn't say mainstream but you know, it was playing in theaters. The, a lot of the gay porn films, the, the sort of milestone gay porn films, some of them were actually reviewed in variety. They, they were making money. They had their own star system. A lot of them were set in this. Um, you know, a lot of them were uh, starring these guys that could have been extras in cruising or could have you know, played the lead in cruising, but they were the real deal. You know, like the uh, movies like Kansas City Trucking Company, movies like that. So, I mean, I wonder how much of this, the making of this movie was motivated by possibly, oh, they see a, a market. But then the movie itself, you know, any gay audience is going to be completely alienated from the movie because it's making a judgment on on their lives as well. So uh, it's very confusing to me.
6: One thing that I think is interesting about leather as a culture is how it's mutated and kind of gone mainstream and crossed over. And I'm I know Jeffrey probably knows a little bit more than I do. But I remember when I was working, I was working on documentary probably about 10 years ago with a friend of mine. And we were working on it related to couples and people who are in uh, DS lifestyles and BDSM. And through my research was looking into leather because that's part of it. And what I had learned was that leather culture had developed basically in port towns, most specifically on the West Coast, San Francisco and things like that. And it was guys who had come back from World War II and had felt like outcasts because, well, they were gay and they couldn't kind of fit back into the mold that was being built post-World War II. They started to get into motorcycle culture and dressing in a particular style, and all of these things that became basically motorcycle fashion in the decades to come all came out of gay leather lifestyle, to the point where you end up with being a metal kid (laughs) like me, Rob Halford, and Judas Priest. That whole look that Rob Halford had with all of the leather— That was completely taken from the leather community and was then put on stage and saying, look, here's here's your macho guy. And then when Halford pulled the rug out of the metal community and said, no, actually, I've been in the closet. I'm a gay man. (laughs) There was some people that couldn't take it. They kind of lost their minds. It was like, huh? And I just think that that is really fascinating how this, you know, community that that started basically post World War Two in the underground eventually became the symbol of total macho hetero male normality. It's just fascinating to me.
7: Yeah, it's also I think a lot of it comes out of uh, Brando's look and the Wild One, also, you know, which is which is a, a hetero look too. But it, it, I think it goes back to also a lot of guys. Uh, wanting to shed those stereotypes like we talked about before, like some of the the, the images and the, the the porn films that you started seeing. you know Boys in the sand was an exception to that. I think a lot of the uh, filmmakers wanted a more rougher edge to their characterizations. The leather world today is interesting because I was wondering if the hanky code still exists. I don't see a lot of it, but I was in uh, Chelsea a couple months ago and I saw I saw a few hankies. So I think it's it's sort of like the way cruising is now looked on as sort of a retro kind of a movie. A younger generation has no connection to the controversy over cruising, but they're looking at it as kind of a relic. And I do think that it, there is an element of camp to it, too, because of the things that it gets wrong, like uh, Pacino saying hips or lips, and things like that things that are really just like where did that come from or the or the leather guy with the blonde wig you know, the hustler with the blonde wig that's you know uh, right out of central casting i don't know i think there's a fascination to it and that's probably why somebody like franco might be attracted to that movie cuz i don't know that a lot of people know that film now but if they do know it they're looking at it as um as a relic from another time and a lot of the looks that you see now in the gay bars they're you know that look from 1979 1980 that's a really that look is back the plaid and the mustaches and work boots are, are are big time. Wherever you go, everyone's got that look. That and you know the way Patino dresses, he would do very well for himself in Silver Lake right now.
0: Yeah. Between last week's episode on Boys in the Sand and this week's episode, I have watched a possibly unhealthy amount of gay porn. I don't know where that level of healthy versus unhealthy is, but I, I'm close to the threshold.
6: I, I was wondering where the scale was on that. I, I'm not really <laughs> sure. How much gay porn is too much? And <laughs> talk to your children about how much gay porn they're looking at.
0: I have seen a lot of it lately. I've watched, uh, you know, I, I checked out some Fred Halstead, Joe Gage, at least one of the entries in in his trilogy, one called do me evil which was very interesting um i think my and i don't want to say favorite but the most interesting one for me was one called born to raise hell which really feels like it could have been the extra 40 minutes that they always talk about when they talk about cruising and all the stuff that was shot at the leather bars because this thing is rough now i shared this file with both of you guys did either of you have the guts
7: to watch born to raise hell I did watch Born to Raise Hell. It's, I, I've watched a lot of porn for research purposes only, and I've never actually heard of this movie or seen that movie. It, was, um, it, it didn't have much of a plot. It was really just backroom, leather bar, pool table, bondage action. No plot, I don't really think. Whereas um, movies like the, uh, the movies you're talking about, uh, the uh, Fred Halstead movies or the Joe Gage movies, they actually did have a plot. I mean, And the, the idea that a lot of these porn, gay porn filmmakers were – in a sense these were some of the first gay movies these were sort of movies about gay people for gay people and they weren't sort of filtered through hollywood which was um not generally uh you know that just sort of dealt in stereotypes and at a time after gay liberation when a lot of of um gay men were trying to shed all of the stereotypes and prove just how macho they all were these movies really hit a nerve. I mean, they were very, something like Kansas city trucking company, the guy who directed it, Joe gauge, he made a whole series of these movies with featuring these really blue collar macho guys, very similar to the milieu that, um, cruising is set in and they created their whole star, a whole star system. So I just found it really interesting that as gay porn was going mainstream that same year that Cruising came out, Jack Wrangler was starring in uh, Night at the Adonis. You know, and right down the street from where you could probably see Cruising, you could probably see a whole variety of uh, these gay porn movies that were really, really popular. Advertised in Variety, advertised, in there were subway ads for a lot of these movies. Actually, if you look in the background uh, in Cruising and some of the bars, you see posters for some of these movies. So I just wonder what the link is, and I wonder if that was any, if there was any sense that they were trying to capitalize on on a, a subgenre uh and the cruising is sort of at its heart it's an exploitation movie you know
0: the thing about born to race hell that for me is kind of similar to cruising is that there's no for me and and maybe I'm just not missing it there's not a lot of joy in the film and I'm not seeing any kind of real joy going on in the leather bars and cruising. There, nobody. I don't think we really ever see anybody have an orgasm. I don't really think we ever see anybody showing any real affection towards one another. I mean, we get a little bit of that with Steve and, and the Nancy character at the beginning, but really it's very, very muted when it comes to that. And when it comes to the leather bars, we don't see... I mean, there's a couple guys that are grinding against each other, and maybe they seem maybe like they're having an okay time, but really it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of passion. And it just feels like everybody is kind of filtered through this kind of, you know, sleepwalker thing that we have our main character experiencing. I don't know if if either of you guys would agree
7: with that. Well, it's a joyless movie, that's for sure. It definitely feels like... He freaking just wants to rub your face in the muck. You know, I, I, I don't – I think this is just a – at its heart, like I said, it's an exploitation movie. And he wanted – I think he wanted to see how far he could push the envelope. I mean apparently there are these legendary scenes that you mentioned, the, the uh, scenes that he had to cut to get the R rating. But that he had filmed all of this sort of documentary footage in these bars. A lot of stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor. They had to go back to the MPAA – Many, many times to try to get their rating, but I still don't know how it ended up getting the rating that it got. I don't understand how it got an R rating. I don't understand how they couldn't have noticed what was going on. Or how how come they didn't notice the hardcore porn shots in the murder scenes? How come nobody noticed that? How come this ended up getting an R rating? How come that's still on the DVD, still to this day, that footage is in there?
0: Well, there was actually uh, lawsuits going on at the time. Uh, I think it was landmark theaters were suing I can't remember if they were suing the MPAA or if they were suing Friedkin, but it was about the film because they were asking the exact same question you were asking all the way back in the early 80s. How did this movie get the rating that it got? And, you know, we can look at, you know, Kirby Dix, this film is not yet rated as far as, you know, was it that this is a major company that was putting this in front of the ratings board? Was this a bait and switch? Was this one of those where they said, Okay, here's the version that we are submitting to you and then it's a different version that gets shipped out to theaters?
7: I think you're right about that because I, I do know that um Bud Smith, the editor, I, I know that they had submitted this this thing over and over and over and over and they wouldn't tell them exactly what to cut because it was just a general tone you know some movies still today can't get a uh, an r rating because it's just generally disturbing right so i have a feeling that what happened is they put that in at the last minute just to mess with them and it passed and that's in the movie to this to this day that's that's what i feel happened i don't think people they just weren't paying very close attention at that point and they got away with it. So it's sort of like a, the, the, the Scorsese uh, smuggler idea. So he, he certainly smuggled some stuff into that movie that has never, ever been in uh, a mainstream studio movie that I can think of.
6: Well, I remember hearing when the South Park guys had Team America, they had put scenes in there that they knew they were going to cut. They absolutely knew they were going to cut these, but they put it all in there and said, here's the film. And then they got the response back from the board, and they were like, oh, no, you know. So then they went in and they cut that stuff out so that they were allowed to have other things in there because they knew if they put in the version that they wanted, they would have had to cut things that they would wanted to keep. So I think that that's what that extra, quote-unquote, 40 minutes or whatever, you know, the harder, hardcore stuff that Friedkin put in there was a way to balance it out to go, okay, well, I know I can keep this if I give them stuff that's so far out and I don't mind losing.
7: I think you're right. I think that's probably what happened. And somebody was asleep at the wheel at the MPAA and didn't notice that a lot of that stuff ended up still being in the last cut that they said that they approved that ended up going to theaters.
6: Yeah, because it, you know, at least the tone isn't as bad as what I just saw. So I guess this is better. You know, it's kind of balancing comparables.
7: It's funny to
0: read some of the reviews and some of the the essays that were written about this film and just to... I won't say that people you know, make mistakes because, of course, they don't, especially on the Internet. But the way that people's minds interpret things, I mean, there are people out there that probably in their heads think that they saw a fist entering into some guy's anus because we get that implication – as we're watching the film we don't actually see it but sure enough there are people out there that are like oh my god that fisting scene was so intense and it's like yeah not really not not really i mean i've seen baseball bats shoved up guys so seeing you know (laughs) uh, uh, an arm coming back i mean it's it's a it's almost as tame as the caligula
6: fisting well it's it's texas chainsaw ask people who have seen texas chainsaw massacre they go oh it was so horrible it's like, no, actually, it's not that bad. If you sit down and you analyze it, what it is, it's the tone. It feels a particular way. It feels, it, and psychologically, it imprints into you. And then you think that you've seen things that are actually way worse than what's actually on the film itself, if you were to go scene by scene, frame by frame.
7: I got to think that he filmed a lot of that stuff. I, gotta, I mean, there's a shot, I think the one you're talking about, this, this fisting thing. In that bar scene, there's a guy who's putting Crisco all over his arm, getting ready to, to you know, go to town, and I just got to think that, that that was filmed because Friedman brought in all of these extras that were actually people who would be hanging out at that bar anyway, and he probably just told them just do what you normally do. And a lot of that stuff was going on in those bars at the time. And I got to think that he just knowing Friedkin and his sort of fascination in, in, in kinkiness, uh, he probably just did film that. And Friedkin went to those bars doing his research and he talks about that on the DVD that he would that he went to the bars with the producer who just won a golden globe last night for the Liberace movie by the way uh dressed up in um you know leather chaps so uh, you know he does have a fascination and he's fascinated and repelled by it at the same time which is what makes the gives that movie that really interesting tension
0: watching the DVD and comparing it versus the old version of the film um which I have on VHS that those insert shots that you're talking about are just so much more clear than what we saw in the VHS. And I'm almost wondering if he put a little bit more polish on those when it came to the restoration for the DVD, because we know that he futzed around with that quite a bit. Despite what I asked him when I talked to him about Sorcerer, I did ask him a little bit about Cruising. When it comes to Cruising, can you tell me once and for all, are there different versions of Cruising that are out there?
9: No, no, there's only one version of Cruising. There were 40 minutes cut after I showed it to the head of the ratings board. We went back 50 times with that film before it got an R rating, and I had a contract to deliver an R. And it was I so I shot 40 minutes of what was really pure pornography. And I shot it because I could, and I knew that in putting it in, I would never get it all through. I didn't know how much of it I could get through. I got through, I got past them, a lot of things. But about 40 minutes went out, and they were literal pornography. Now, when Warners did the Blu-ray of that, we looked for uh, this footage, and we, we can't find it. I have no idea where it is.
0: And now we know that is not necessarily true, because just comparing the VHS and the DVD, I won't say we see a ton of differences, but we definitely see a good number of differences. And just the way that the film is handled, I mean, there's so many more fades to black in the original. We just don't get those fades at all. We just get you know, solid cuts going on, and then there's a couple bits of extra things of uh, Steve walking into clubs. Seems to be the the biggest addition to the DVD, and then as you mentioned earlier, Rob, the whole omission. Of The disclaimer at the beginning and kind of this more like um, I think somebody compared it to uh, Goodfellas or I would say it's kind of more like Rocky the way that the title crawls across the screen.
6: Yeah, there's the Rocky uh, style title slide, as I called it, versus the disclaimer because there's no title card in, in the original VHS. But the one thing that I think is in terms of the biggest change and it's not even has to do with, you know, physical changes in that way. It's the tone of the film. In that in the VHS original, there's actually skin tones. There's warm tones. The DVD looks like he dipped this thing in Picasso's blue period. Every single shot throughout the entire film is all blue toned. And it takes out all the warmth that was in the original one. Not to say that it's a warm film. It's not. But even in the first murder scene where you're seeing someone bare chested, their skin tone actually looks flesh. In all of this, it just it looks almost monochromatic, and and that's the thing that I had read also somewhere that said that the guy who was the cinematographer, I'm not remember his name off the top of my head, but supposedly he wanted to film this in black and white. I read somewhere. I don't know if that's you know be internet BS or not, but with this blue tone that's over the entire film on the DVD, you almost get that.
7: Yeah, I noticed that too, and it's it's interesting because when uh, Friedkin redid the French Connection for DVD, I think it was the DVD. He retinted a lot of the the scenes and without the participation of the cinematographer, uh, Owen Roisman, who was like famously angry about it. And so I wonder if he's just in the color correct room and just um, turning. It seemed like all the bar scenes were blue. All the scenes with him out in the in the leather world were blue. It was a really strange choice and really distracting. And it was – what you did, Mike, by sending the comparison was so fascinating to see that because that was such a uh, a blatant change from the original. One other thing I noticed in the uh, comparison that you guys sent me, there is a hardcore insert shot in the peep show booth scene that isn't in the original. So he added one hardcore shot in the peep show murder scene. That doesn't surprise me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, because
0: seeing just the inserts that are in that first murder, like, I had heard for years that there were subliminal images in this film, and then watching it compared, you know, the VHS and the DVD at the same time, it was like, oh my god, yeah, that's so obvious on the DVD that there are these shots in there. But I really, even with the two images side by side, I still had a hard time seeing it in the VHS.
7: But do studios ever retroactively change the ratings of movies that they've already rated? Because today that would be, I don't even think it would get an NC-17. I
6: I mean, I remember um, someone, I I think it was uh, Graydon Clark, wasn't it? Mike in his book talks about that. He put the film in, he got it rated, he went back, he edited, he tried to get them to re-rate it, and they wouldn't do it. They said, sorry, we already rated this uh, R, so you're not getting your PG rating on this thing, even though it would have qualified the second time it went through.
0: Yeah, he messes with color quite a bit in this one because the other thing that he does freaking in this is he there are two insert shots when it is uh, Stuart Richards talking to his father towards again. And he has made those kind of more black and white and almost like a video type effect on those. And they were in color ish in the original which I found to be odd. They really draw attention to themselves there, which is also weird too, because we only see two murders that are flashback to when allegedly he killed three people so far. Well, actually four, we probably should have seen the college professor that we never saw murdered. So that was odd. And you're right guys, as far as the blue tints and stuff, I think the, the writer in video watchdog said that it looked like a a kid had been messing with the uh, color tint on their TV (laughs) (laughs) when they were watching this because it is it's almost distracting especially to see it in comparison with the other version and be like wow what what is going on here why are all these people blue, And I know the other thing that pissed people off was the addition to, of the video effects when it came to Pacino's character uh, doing poppers.
7: Yes, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And there were some weird color changes in there, too, as far as this like American flag that gets shown. It's like yellow and white and one and black and
7: white. and It's just kind of weird. But let's give props to Al Pacino for doing this movie because a major movie star doing poppers and dancing with men in leather bars is pretty fantastic. So regardless of anything else we're saying about this movie, I I feel like Al Pacino deserves some credit for – that's a pretty brave thing to do for a major movie star to say yes to something like that.
0: I think I might be a better dancer than Al Pacino. I'm not sure.
6: I just had this image flash to like a year or so after Cruising where he's dancing in Scarface. And in my head, I have this mashup of Scarface at the leather bar. Like, oh, yeah, baby. That's it. All right now. You know, I don't know why. I just (laughs) – Just the idea of those two kind of merging together in those dance scenes is just hilarious to me in my head.
4: you want me to
9: dance? Yeah, sure. Go on, Tony. You dance. Go
4: on. Have some fun.
7: Well he's never talked about this movie I, I I don't think he's ever done an interview hes He's not on the dvD he's never done it uh, he's never talked about what it was like making the movie. I think it's a painful experience for him i'm not I, I don't know why maybe because of the way the movie was received or because of the protests and people were angry at him personally for making this movie. They felt that he somehow betrayed a lot of people by saying yes to being in something like that. So I wonder what – I'm fascinated to know what he really thinks about it. Yeah, and he had played gay characters before. I mean he was
0: you know, famously gay in Dog Day Afternoon. And I don't know – right. how do you come down on that portrayal of
7: gays in that film? I love Dog Day Afternoon because you don't know going in what the story is with him. And then by the time you find out what, that he's a gay character, maybe because he's trying to get a sex change for his lover. So you're not quite sure where he falls on the Kinsey scale, I guess – but um, you're already kind of in love with the guy when you find out. And then when you find out in the movie what his real story is, the reaction of other characters in the movie when they kind of turn their back on him or kind of write him off as a freak. You know, he, the, a lot of the people in the audience are probably having that same reaction, too, at the time. So that's, but that was a really interesting choice in Dog Day Afternoon to do that.
0: I have a dumb question for you guys. They make a big deal in the script about these license plates that are on certain cars, and I noticed that this shot is reinserted on the DVD where Pacino is walking down the street and there are these two cars, and they both say FFA 36 and FFA 69 on these license plates. Do you guys have any idea what FFA is other than Future Farmers of America?
6: That's what I was going for. It's the only one I know.
7: I have a theory about what 69 means, but, that's, but I don't
0: know. They made a point in the script to say FFA license plates. There are lots of FFA license plates around here that he took the time, Friedkin took the time to add that specific shot back into the film. I'm, actually, I'm going to leave this bit in and maybe one of our, our brilliant listeners can let us know That FFA does not stand for Future Farmers of America and stands for something
6: else. Well, maybe that was the thing. You know, he he had known something and was expecting protests from the agricultural community, especially the young agricultural community of America uh, to the film (laughs) and thought that, you know, this would play really well in um, in Kansas and Oklahoma, because as we learned from the movie, Ed Wood, you know, and the character of George Weiss, played by Mike Starr.
3: Those were pressed opens They go for that twisted, perverted stuff.
7: Oh, that's the guy from Ed Wood. Yes. I just made that connection. That's him. Playing the
6: same character.
7: Oh, in Cruising and in Ed Wood. That's the same guy. I didn't make that connection. Same actor, same
0: character.
6: Same character? Yeah, same
0: character. He used to be a policeman, he used to be a movie producer, and then he moved to New York and became a policeman.
6: Yes, Uh there you go. George Weiss, exploitation uh, producer (laughs) and and, uh, beat cop.
0: You know, we talked a little bit about the voice earlier we also talked about this whole hopping around from character to character as far as the way that the killer kind of goes around and the way that the voice kind of follows the killer around one thing that i found very fascinating is that well first off it's the voice of jack and i you know i guess jack richards is is, is stuart's father okay but then one review that i read kind of positioned that as Jack the Ripper, you know, is this that same kind of evil that was going around all those years ago and kind of reincarnated over here? It's kind of like that movie with Denzel Washington and John Goodman. um, I think it's called Fallen or something. Um, But in the screenplay, well, in the screenplay, there are two things. I talked earlier about that scene where Stuart and Steve are having their kind of knife fight. And it ends up in the screenplay, for some reason, Friedkin kept that blue mace canister in the first draft of the screenplay, which in the context of the film, of the screenplay, makes absolutely no sense. He hasn't introduced that anywhere else. And we are not going to understand what the hell that is. And it's like one of the few tiebacks to the book. And it's like it makes no sense the way that it is. But the other thing that I did find interesting, though, is that while they were having their battle in the screenplay, the voice of Jack transfers from Stuart to Steve. So it's more obvious that Steve has this killer inside of him then. So, again, like I had read that Pacino maybe wasn't happy about, you know, his character being implicated as killing Ted at the end of the film. And, you know, we get these red herrings as far as the the James Remark character and the Spinell character is there. And, you know, but really for me, just having read the book and having read the screenplay, there's no doubt in my mind that Pacino's the guy at the end. And especially as you were talking about, Rob, that look in the camera just, to me, says it all.
7: During those protests, another movie was filming at the same time in the village, and that was Can't Stop the Music.
0: Yeah, and I heard they got protested by accident one day.
7: They were protested by accident, and Nancy Walker said, Hey guys, you want cruising right down the street? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see Nancy Walker's version of cruising. Oh,
0: man. Can you imagine? Would it be Bruce Jenner as Steve and uh, Steve Gutenberg as uh, Stuart Richards?
7: I, it would definitely have more musical numbers. It would
0: definitely have more roller skating.
7: I love Can't Stop the Music. Can we do a whole two-hour conversation about Can't Stop the Music? Um, I have
0: been on another the- podcast and talked about Can't Stop the Music, but I would definitely love to to do a Can't Stop the Music episode. We tried to get Gutenberg and tried to get Perrine, and I tried to get Randy Jones, tried to get all the original village people that are still around. Nobody
7: would bite. I'm starting a doc on Alan Carr. And oh, all those there people, you go. Yeah. Uh, they're all people I'm going to want to talk to. So that's interesting to know. I, I Valerie Perrine, this is off topic, but she blames um, that movie for killing her career. Like literally, yeah. She She's very upset about that yeah, movie. Yeah, she
0: said, I never saw a dime from that movie. I will not give it any
7: free publicity. Interesting. Well, what's Gutenberg have to complain about? He's great well, now. Gutenberg,
0: it was a weird thing because we had him set up to do an interview, and his person was like on the phone with me. He was promoting the Gutenberg Bible, and his person's like, uh. okay, I'm going to connect you with Steve now. And she you know, put me on hold or whatever, and I waited there for 20 minutes or something. He never picked up the phone and I emailed, I called, you know, I was just like, Hey, you know, and she's like, Oh yeah, he says he's busy. We'll set up for another time. it's like, okay. And like every day I'm emailing. And then finally it's like, Oh yeah, we're no longer Steve's publicist on this. And it's like, okay, well, who is interesting? Yeah, really weird. And I hadn't submitted questions. I just said I wanted to ask him about his autobiography, and he does talk quite a bit about Can't Stop the Music in there. So, But yeah, good luck with, with getting the original Village People. I saw them at the Riviera a couple years ago, and they still sell the movie. They didn't talk about the movie that much, and yeah, they still sell it, and they sell it for some outrageous price, too, at their live shows. It's out of print. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Don Scardino, who played Ted Bailey in Cruising.
3: <laughs> Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films. Any cult film. Every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member your mom's a cult member your dad's a cult member your damn mother-in-law's a cult member <laughs> tune in outside the cinema baby you know find out what's going on reverend scott and that's out
10: i started acting when i was 12 and you know got my probably my sag card when i was about 14 and i was 20 20 something so i've been acting as a teenager and all that and i've been on television and soap operas and stuff like that but and broadway but billy was great it was the, the best uh uh, audition so-called I ever had, which is I walked in to meet Billy Freak and, you know, who I only knew by reputation, The Exorcist, etc. And uh, I knew Al because I'd worked with Al in an off-Broadway play and had maintained sort of on-again, off-again friendship with him. But I walked into his office and uh, we talked for a while about the movie and, uh, and and then about theater in New York and all that. And then And I had the script and I was prepared to read and everything. And then he said, well, hey, I've seen you on stage. He had seen me in Moon Children, I guess, off Broadway or something. And he said, yeah, you can do this. So you want to do it? And I said, boy, are we going to read? And he said, no, I don't have to read. You, you, if you want to do it, you can do it. I said, really? <laughs> really? "Because said, I want to leave here thinking I've got this movie. And he said, yeah, you got it. If you want it, you cure. And I walked out of there, you know, like on, on a cloud. It was the greatest uh, job interview offer I ever received, you know, and and he, w- he was great to me throughout. I must say, Billy was... Um, he really uh, enjoyed the character. He enjoyed the scenes where this character appeared. You know, he was very particular about the, the death scene. But anyway, that's, that's how I came to cruising. Yeah. I got the job. And then Al was appearing in Richard III on Broadway. So I went to the theater and dropped him a note. And he called me up. And, and the great thing about my participation in cruising was that Al and I just went off on our own to rehearse the scenes. And uh, what I wanted to do was uh, walk around the city at night and just um, run the lines of the scenes that we had together. Just, just keep doing it over and over and trying different things and stuff. And I went to his apartment and he put on some bummy clothes and a slouchy hat and funky overcoat. And 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 we nobody recognized him. And we walked around the city at night running the lines of the of the scenes, uh, which
0: was great. I know a lot of actors will do like a backstory to their character. Did you do anything for,
10: for Ted Bailey? Not a whole lot, although I, I recognized him. I mean, having grown up in theater, I recognized him as, as, you know, kind of the straight gay man. You know, the guy who is a- absolutely, um, you know, not whatever, was stereotypically sissy or, you know, femi- effeminate. Uh, but um, he, he was a playwright or a would-be playwright. And uh, he uh, was a gay man, but he seemed very comfortable with his sexuality. And I thought what was interesting, and why I wanted to play the part, was I thought in a world, uh, in the movie where this was about, to me, the movie was about what happens when you when you when you say that this kind of sexuality is bad or wrong or evil or corrupt or whatever you want to say, negative connotation you put to it, and you sweep it into dark corners. That is to say the leather bars and all the rest of it, the fuck bars, excuse me, can I say fuck, but um, that, um, that it breeds violence. And in the middle of this world, I think they put this character to say, this is not all there is to this world. And there is a, a, a lot of men out there who are perfectly realized, balanced, in touch with their sexuality, not not shamed, not afraid, not going to leather bars and not doing this, but living you know what anyone would call a normal life. And um, and he wanted this character to represent that point of view. And I think that well, when all the shit hit the fan and the protests started, and, and rightly so, the gay community was concerned that you would have the first mainstream movie by a, a big studio come out and be about this mom, this dark world, this violent world, and that it, it would just um, um, prejudice more people against gay people I countered with the fact that, well, this character exists in the movie to represent the fact that this is uh, not the filmmaker's view, that that's all there is, it just happens to be the slice of life that they're portraying. That's what I was after. I was after sort of, you know, I called him the the, the, the the you know, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm in the middle of that movie, you know, the the guy who's um, positive, outward, comfortable, adjusted, afraid, like the other men in the story when this stuff starts happening, that's... You know, I had a, a gay friend, an actor that I'd worked with in a play. He said, you know, when all this, uh, a- when AIDS started coming out and big people started to be aware of it, he said, you know, the terrible thing about it is he said, I'm going to the bars more often. He said, it's almost like uh, it's a seductive thing to try and cheat this death thing, this disease. And he said, it's almost like a turn on, which I didn't quite understand because I didn't, I wasn't inside his head or, or in, in terms of his sexual libido, but but it was interesting to me and I thought it kind of justified something about the movie being pre AIDS, you know, and 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 this friend of mine uh actually later died of AIDS. And I also remember him saying after he saw the movie that the thing that scared him about the movie was that he thought you know, people would sit in the back of the dark theater and actually be turned on by the violence. So that that was his that was his take on sort of the effect of a movie like that on the populace, but it, it's it's very much a, you know, <clears throat> you look at it now and you look and you and you say, well, you know, well, no wonder we had an AIDS epidemic in New York City, because um, um, things, you know, the, the controls were off, you know, the car was driving itself. And I think the movie does accurately reflect that.
0: It's fascinating to me that Friedkin had 10 years before done Boys in the Band. At mm-hmm. that point, were people pointed to that as look at what he had done before and that it was a bad example, or was that even part of the mix when it came to some of the controversy around the film?
9: I think you're right
10: in that Billy felt justified in in doing this other side of the gay uh, community at that time, having done a rather compassionate look at a bunch of gay men in in, uh, sad, but, but compassionate, in, in, uh, boys in the band. Again, like I say, as a, as a straight man, I think he felt justified in, in making the other movie, but you know, I, the, the, the furor over cruising was so immediate and, and, and strong and loud and strong. And, and of course it's, it, it, the, the, I can't remember where it fits in stonewall, was stonewall before or after it, it, it makes sense that it would be before because it would be, you know, it just would be, be another step in a way, of sort of the social conscience growing for gay rights, and you know, and they didn't want to be portrayed and you know, maligned, and what they thought was the movie does. I, I can't really be objective enough at this point to look at the movie and go they were right or they were wrong. I think they were right in terms of there was no balanced view out there, so they felt that this would only tip the scale against them. But as kind of a social document of a of a world gone haywire. You know, one can argue with the facts, which is that you know these bars proliferated and it was a breeding ground for violence and disease. Um, no moral judgment was being made necessarily. It was just any more than you know. Uh, you might say that um, certain economic uh, deprivations and hardship leads to meth labs around the country. You know, people. You know, it's just it it it. Um, it's a
0: fascinating view. When I think of your scenes, I generally think of the daytime and light. You know, that's how you kind that's of ground dirty. things. And you seem to to be very much in the day, whereas, you know, all the murder and destruction happens in the deepest yeah. hours.
10: Yeah, that that's deliberate. You know, I'm never, that character, you never see him at the bar. You never see him in Central Park and the Ramble or any of the, any of the nighttime scenes. He, he always sort of brings the light element in with him. And uh, and again, I think that's a deliberate uh, attempt on Friedkin's part to show the other side of things um, and to sort of make it credible. If I, I always felt that the underlying inference was that Pacino's character kills him because uh, he he in his uh, you know going undercover and getting involved in the gay world, he uh, he goes too far and actually finds himself falling for this guy, Ted. To me, that was always the inference. He could never get Billy to come down on the on the side of uh, whether that was the case or not, uh, and he, he wanted it to be enigmatic. He wanted the audience to make up their own minds. But that was the inference. And you know, uh, you know, the history. I mean, initially, the script was very different, and they went back and reshot scenes with um, to kind of say that the murderer wasn't one murderer, but several guys. Uh, so, I, you know, but but when we were shooting it and off the original script, the inference was always that. It was Pacino's character that um, killed the Ted Bailey character.
0: Yeah, tell me more about that original script if you remember anything about it.
10: If I only knew then what I know now, I would have been much more aware. But but I had a feeling at the time that scenes were being dropped and we were frequently being told, oh, well, that's you know, because of the protesters and stuff, we can't shoot that today or whatever. And I remember Al saying to Billy things like, well, if we drop that scene, won't it be. You know, Al's very meticulous about crafting the arc of that character uh, from scene to scene and how, so he could track the psychological sort of underpinnings of what happens in that character. And, and I remember him saying something about, well, if we don't shoot this scene, won't we miss this connection between. C and D here, you know, and I said, no, no, we're you're going to, don't worry. We're going to do a rewrite and cover that and we'll shoot that later. And I remember that kind of thing going on. So the script was very much in flux as we went along that I remember. And, uh, and then I, you know, I did all my looping and, uh, and then I heard, that I thought the movie was being finished, but then I heard they'd gone back to reshoot some scenes. Uh, and then, the the scenes, uh, some of the scenes, at the end of the movie, the killer in the hospital, I think it is. I remember that wasn't in the original script. Originally, my recollection is that story is about this fellow is based on the true some of the true story of, uh, of a detective in New York who goes undercover to investigate those things and gets enmeshed in the world of it. And then the fiction began, which not based on the true stories, but that this guy then... When the line between unacceptable violence, see, that's what I thought the line between unacceptable violence and acceptable violence. Policeman has, uh, he's allowed to be violent in the pursuit of his job and fighting crime and, you know, all the rest of it. Whereas uh, this other is unacceptable violence, obviously murder, killing. uh, And he crosses the line from acceptable violence to unacceptable violence by immersing himself in this, you know, dark uh, world.
0: Were any of your scenes directly affected by the protests?
10: Yes. One scene where Al and I were walking along the street and talking, I can't remember whether it's filmed in the movie or not, but, um, we, we, I think it was actually the first scene I shot and we, Al and I were told to go into this courtyard off Bleakham street and, and they would call action. And then we just start, we rehearsed it. We'd come walking down the street, camera was on a long lens and we'd go walking along and a page of dialogue, stop at one point and then continue. And, um, you know, Al and I were talking and then we start doing vocal warm-ups uh, and I thought, this is great. He still works just like a real stage actor. He's, You know, even though he's a movie star and they call action and we go walking out and we, the first couple lines and suddenly bottles are coming off the of, tops of the building. Yeah, and <laughs> glass is exploding and he's like, get out, get out, get out, they can take us away and then they sent guys and you know, PAs up to check the rooftops and then we shot it again and this time was nothing. Then other times we would be um, shooting a scene and uh, uh, they'd be off camera somewhere on a location you know, in, in Manhattan and just screaming out slogans, you know, and, and they'd have to cut. One time we, we finished a day of shooting and we went to rehearse. There's a scene in a coffee shop where I show them the newspaper and I say homo killer on the prowl, the headline, and it's he and I in a coffee shop and it was in the, in the West Village somewhere. So at the end of the day, we we're going to shoot it the next morning. And Billy said, "Let's just go into the coffee shop location and rehearse it." And so we go in there and uh, and we rehearse the scene. And while we're rehearsing the scene, a crowd gathers outside the coffee shop, maybe a hundred, a hundred some odd protesters, and they're yelling like, "No, no, Pacino! And, you know, cruising, go home, and all that stuff." And we're we're done rehearsing and now it's time to leave and they realize that there's no back way out. But there's only one way in and one way out and that's on the street. And Al says, gee, I I and then they come up and say, uh, there's some news camera teams from local news out there and they wanna know if they can talk to Mr. Pacino, and there's mounted police trying to hold the crowd back and and he's like Al's a very shy person, you know, in life. He's he's very um Diffident, in, at least at that point in his life, and he's, he's not comfortable with the spotlight, even though he was a big star. And he said, I don't, do I have to talk to these people? And they said, no, no, you don't have to. So his bodyguard said, I called my office, and we're going we're to get some guys down here, and we're basically going to create a wedge at the door and pull the car up and slide you out between the guys in the wedge and throw you in his car and take off. I'm sitting there, and I said to Al, can I go with you in the wedge? And he said, well, you think this is funny? And I said, no, but I know I'm never going to have to leave anywhere in a wedge. I know this about myself, you know, (laughs) I'm never going to be Al Pacino. So can I, he said, sure, I don't care what the hell, sure. So, so, um, they, they, they get the car on the curb and they get the guys in place or like 12 guys, whatever, six on each side, making this flying wedge this sort of trying, you know, uh, V shape from the door to the car. And, uh, they open the door and Al running out and I run out behind. It was, like running the gauntlet and the news camera guys are saying, meet the Pacino, meet the Pacino. And the people are yelling and screaming and the cop's horse is rearing and boom, they throw in the door and they throw us into the car boom, and pull off. And I'm sitting there laughing going, as we pull away going, this is great. This is great. And Al is sitting slumped in the seat like, oh my God, this is my life. And then of course, two blocks, they pull over and <laughs> they say, oh, you out. <laughs> you know, go, go back. That was that, but that was so, that was uh, like a Beatle escape. It it was, seemed to be be fun at the time. I was, you know, whatever I was, 22 years old or something. But in in truth, it was not a pleasant thing for, you know, it really, it really showed how the situation had escalated around the movie and was making it impossible to film. And that there was a lot of anger about it in the community and um, it was a hot button topic for sure. So did you go to the premiere for this? I did not. I don't even remember a premiere. I mean, there may have been one. Don't remember. You know, it's funny because, uh, uh, you know, the movie came out, and again, this is all just my recollection. Uh, I don't remember it being particularly well received. I know that Al, when he saw a cut of the movie finally, was, I was told, not by Al, but I'd heard that he was not happy with it. And at one point, he even asked his, uh, you know, representatives whether there was anything they could do to keep the movie from coming out. And, uh, and they said no. It's better to just let it come out and do whatever it's going to do, you know. And I think Al's working it is terrific. I think everybody everybody's work is terrific. But it wasn't well received. And I don't know whether it was because it was politically incorrect to receive it well, or because, or because of the uh, reshooting and the confused ending, uh, it put people off. I have I have my again my recollection of the of the film now was that. Uh, uh, it was so baffling at the end as to what actually happened and what happened to Hal's character and what the filmmakers were saying that people were not engaged by the movie ultimately. And um, I think they pulled it from release pretty quickly. That's my recollection. It's only been, you know, in, in the light of uh, history that it has come back around again and, and been seen as more interesting. And particularly by,
8: you know,
10: there are a number of people that I know that are gay men that have seen it, since and they were too young at the time, and they come back to say they thought it was a really fascinating movie. It's definitely, it's definitely a freaking movie. I mean, it's it's uh, shocking, it's scary, it's terrifying in many levels, and you know, it um, it's very provocative whether it actually totally works or not. I don't know.
0: Was there any kind of stigma in 1980 that was associated with playing a gay character in a mainstream movie, or was that pretty much just acceptable at that point?
10: Yeah, I, I, I think it was all, it was, it was all fine. I mean, you know, uh, I think partly, you know, it had such a, an air of legitimacy about it because it was freaking, it was Warner brothers. It was Al Pacino and Karen Allen and Paul Servino. You know, it was also a listed that, um, there wasn't any stigma that I was aware of and interestingly enough to my knowledge all the gay characters in the movie are played by straight actors and I think that uh, I'm not exactly sure what Friedkin's reasoning it was whether there was whether that was a considered thing on his part whether he just just happened to be that way or what I think he was trying to avoid any cries of stereotyping uh, these characters uh, as different or other or sissies or like I say effeminate people or whatever I think he was trying to present them as just people but but there wasn't there wasn't any um it wasn't any backlash and you know again you know the, the the movie there seemed as again this is my recollection you may know better than me from from looking at it historically but there seemed to me a big yawn about the movie you know that it was kind of um well it's not very good the, the you know the ending's confusing I mean, it would be very interesting i I should do this myself when I have a break in the action myself is sort of look at the critical response when it opened. Uh, My recollection is that it was kind of uh, neither a big deal either way, but there wasn't enough support for the movies to keep it around.
0: The one word that always comes back for me when I'm looking at the reviews is confusing.
10: Yeah, I think that's true. And, And again, you know, I think a part of that, you know, listen, it may have been, you know, since then I've become a director and it may have just been that when the director realized that there was no way he was going to be able to make this movie in the way he wanted to with all this stuff going on on the street and then from the studio it may have been well you know there's so much stuff about in the paper let's just get it done and get it out and um you know that would have been very it's a very tricky proposition I don't remember the script being as the original script that I read being as confusing as the movie that ultimately came out and I think again there may have been some uh, you know the studio might have said again I'm just just making this up but it could be true the studio might have said we don't want to see Al Pacino who's a you know big movie star now and a, a big money maker for us we don't want to see him be the murderer in this movie we don't want it to be his character we don't want him to have turned into this psycho killer so let's let's cock up this ending about, you know, three or four guys who sort of look alike and maybe any one of these guys could have been the guy and they all sort of are Chino esque as well and that's where the confusion comes from and you know, I think um I think that's probably what happened.
6: Thanks to Don Scardino for coming by and talking to us about playing the role of Ted Bailey in cruising. Of course, you can find out more about him and everything related to this episode over at our website, projection-booth.com. Now we're back and we're talking about cruising. And one of the things in the past year or so that's really ignited a lot of discussion around cruising has been this film. That has come together called Interior Leather Bar. And part of the reason why it's getting so much attention is because of who's connected to it, which is James Franco. And the whole concept behind Interior Leather Bar, if I'm correct, Mike, is that the film purports to be, or at least it advertised itself to be during the production To be the missing 40 minutes of what William Friedkin shot and then had to cut from the film. So this was supposed to help, I guess, maybe in some way to explain to the purists when it came to cruising, what cruising was missing. But then again, maybe not.
0: Yeah, I read a very negative review of Interior Leather Bar. I think it was in Variety. And they definitely bought that whole idea of this is going to be the missing 40 minutes, whether it is, you know, it, obviously it's not the missing 40 minutes, but it's going to be like an interpretation and it's going to be a reenactment of what those are. And this whole salacious kind of appetite started going for, you know, ooh, let's see all this kind of for, forbidden fruit and let's see James Franco in this. And it's so not that. And anybody who goes in thinking that it's going to be that hundred percent is I won't say they're going to be disappointed because it's a great, great film, but that is not what you are about to see.
6: And not only that, but I mean, I like Franco because Franco has this tendency to play in mainstream film and do rather well. But he also has this prankster side to him that I really enjoy. I remember there was an art piece that he sold a few years back that was nothing for $10,000 to someone. (laughs) Here's art, you know. And it's like, what is it? It's like, it's nothing. Here you go. Just give me 10 grand. And I just love this sort of prankster element where he could go, okay, what's something that can get us into this place where we can talk about this larger idea? And I think that's really what Interior Leather Bar does, is it talks about a larger idea. Because if it was just the reenactment of the missing 40 minutes of this Friedkin film, that wouldn't be anything. But he uses that as a platform to start this larger conversation.
0: So what the film is, is this hey, we're going to reenact this 40 minutes and talk about this and yada yada, and then really kind of becomes a behind-the-scenes look at the shooting of this project. But then it kind of twists again, and we find that it's more of a conversation as far as the main character who's going to be playing the Al Pacino role and what his all the people around him are kind of saying about him playing this role – And then it kind of even twists a little bit more and we find out that so much of what he's doing is already scripted. There's one part in the film that I absolutely love where he is reading out loud what's happening in the scene. And it's just brilliant kind of stuff that they have. I mean, this film is only 15 minutes long and that they have all of these different shifts in expectations and open up such a larger conversation in such a short amount of time. I've actually I found this film very brilliant.
6: Well it's layered in that way. It's also I guess what the kids would call meta. It's media talking to itself about itself in a particular way. But I think really the larger aspect of what he's talking about in this film is about male on male sexuality within the context of Hollywood You know, because we're talking about an actor and he's talking to his agent and he's like, I really don't think this is a good idea for you to do this. This is like career suicide. So it's all about these aspects of like what you were talking about, um, Jeffrey, related to Pacino. I mean, it's a brave choice to do something like this. And what does that mean when you're trying to build a career and be an actor within that system? Yeah,
7: it seemed like uh, Leather Bar got uh, criticized for what it actually isn't, which is um, just a free-for-all of uh, hardcore sex. But it, what it really is about is about straight guys being uncomfortable with gay sexuality. And uh, Franco being you know, three feet away from hardcore gay sex in a movie at the same time that he's got The Wizard of Oz out in the world I think is just – amazing and i kind of don't know how he gets got away with that one that no one tried to talk him out of doing that no one tried to stop him and yet he can still headline these movies and uh be in a you know a, I don't know PG rated family movie at the same time as he's doing a a, a gay hardcore movie that's pretty that's pretty fantastic so I, I'm gonna give him props for that.
0: Well, not only is he in the 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 Wizard of Oz movie last year, he's in uh, Spring Breakers, and he's in This Is the End, where he's sending up his own image. I mean the 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 line of Danny McBride where he's talking about. Wait a
5: second, I know what happened. You guys dropped acid, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Craig doesn't have any pants on. He got fucking wild, probably danced, sweated all over the place. You got white shit all over your mouth, Frankie. You probably sucked somebody's dick. Jonah over here probably watched and jerked off. Jay, I didn't even know you were in town. Good to see you. Danny, we're not on acid. We didn't suck each other's dicks. James Franco didn't suck
6: any dick last night. Now I know you all are tripping.
0: The way that he plays with his own image, not just you know in Interior Leather Bar, but just across the board, keeping everybody guessing. And and I think it pisses a lot of people off as far as, you know, like, oh, what are you, an actor, a poet, a writer? And he's just like, yeah, I'm whatever I want to be. And I really appreciate that about him. You know, there's very few don't even want to just label as, a, as an actor. There are very few artists out there that can go into all these things. Maybe he's not 100 percent successful all the time, but he's got the guts to try it and to, to go out there and tr- and do all these different things. I mean, this is the span of a year and he's in, you know, four completely different movies.
7: Well, and also it used to be the kiss of death for an actor to be associated with a gay movie or a gay role. You know, all those actors from the boys in the band, they couldn't get arrested after they did that movie, you know. And Franco actually encourages all of that gossip and encourages all of that ambiguity in a, in a really cool way that I don't think any actor's really done that I can think of thus far. So, you know, I, and I think he just gets a big kick out of get, keeping people guessing, like
6: you said. We're going to take another break and play an interview with Travis Matthews, the co-director of Interior Leather Bar. I'm Jesse P.S. and I'm the host of the Pod Awful podcast. We're a comedy show where crazy shit happens. On my show, my girlfriend has called in to break up with me. I've been arrested live, and the Secret Service actually investigated me over something I
2: said in the show. We've had such crazy guests as
4: Mike Cap.
8: Hello,
6: Jesse. This is the Andrew WK This is Gail
8: Gilligan. Jesse, how are you? And here are some of the
6: glowing reviews we've received. Another Crass Amateur Hour podcast. Not for me. Probably not for you either. This podcast once held my mother down and spit in her mouth. We are Awful. We are live every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time over at Podawful.tv. And you can check out our podcast anytime at Podawful.com. We are, of
10: course, a part of the Podawful channel, podcast network. Please check out all the shows over at
11: Podawful.net. And until you check us out, have an awful day.
0: Can you tell me, where did the idea for Interior Leather Bar come from?
11: You know, James and I didn't know each other before this project. And James had wanted to do something that looked at cruising kind of as a touchstone, and then also something that had explicit or real sex in it that was woven into the story of whatever the project was going to be. And he wanted to collaborate with somebody who had already been doing that. He was turned on to my first feature film, I Want Your Love, which is a gay narrative that has explicit sex woven into it. And basically, he reached out to me and first asked if I wanted to collaborate on the project and then you know, wanted to know what I thought about you know, the, the very basic bare bone idea that he initially had going into it, which is what I just told you. And he also wanted to do something that looked at the world of um, cruising and censorship and, and and representations of sex on the screen as sort of a compare and contrast between what was 1980 80 in the original film and then um, our film that we shot last year. So, you know, I was contacted and um, initially we just talked to make sure that we were sort of on the same page with our intentions and where we might want to go with a project. And, you know, it's kind of a strange experience to basically get a phone call from a celebrity out of the blue where you're brainstorming a project together. You know, thankfully, we, we totally connected and it was it was a pretty seamless collaboration in terms of what we wanted to get out of it and our temperament and just kind of the way that we approached it and the fact that, you know, we were both interested and willing to go out on some Some far ledges, as long as there were smart reasons behind different things that we were doing. So that was the that was the initial sort of meeting of us. I had seen Cruising many times and was familiar with both the film. I was familiar with the controversy and the protests that surrounded it, and also just very aware that it was still a lightning rod of a film for so many people. And. Between that and the fact that James was going to be front and center with the project, I knew that it was going to receive its fair share of um, polarizing responses, irrespective of whatever it was that we did. We started talking about our impressions of the film, and then we kind of went separate ways for not very long, but like less than a week, and came back, and the thing that we had both discovered that we didn't know anything about for these mythical 40 minutes that were supposedly, you know, destroyed or taken out of Friedkin's original cut in order to secure an R rating. And it just seemed like the perfect platform to to leap off from, to do a whole host of things. And, you know, we knew from the beginning that we, once we had decided that that was going to be something that was basically going to be at the center of this, we knew we we wanted and we needed to... Have some scenes that were recreated or reimagined, but we never really wanted to do a full reimagining of those forty minutes that just that was not something that we were fully interested in but the ways in which you go in and out of the what are our reimagined 40 minutes on the back of val lauren's arc that's that's the story that we wanted to tell and James, obviously, is a huge presence, being a celebrity in the film um and that is is a big piece of of what's going on in the movie as well. but it's not his movie it's it's powell's movie, and that that was something that that was very clear from the beginning was taking this actor, who really is a friend of James in real life, and the reservations he had were very real in the beginning. And taking taking this actor in a 2012 context to go through a similar journey that parallels Pacino's journey in the original cruising, that was what we wanted to do. And then everything else around that, whether it was the behind the scenes stuff or the reimagined stuff, all of that was in the service of showing his arc over this very long day of production.
0: Did you ever feel kind of like Val while you were making this movie, this whole idea of, like, it's okay for Franco to go out and do whatever he wants, but then there's the other guy who has to kind of worry more about what he's doing?
11: Did I ever feel that way? No, because, first of all, you know, I I had already staked my path over the past few years with the work that I've been doing with my In Their Room series and then with I Want Your Love short and I Want Your Love feature, and I've had sex and explicit sex and gay content and things that for different audiences would be provocative or controversial in my films for several years now. You know, and there was, there was never a moment where I hesitated in thinking that this was going to be a problem or anything for my career or me personally.
0: What was your opinion of Cruising before you started this? And did it change while you were making the film?
11: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that my impressions of it were very much in line with a lot of people's. Which, I mean, I think it's just as a film, I think it's it's a flawed film in terms of a lot of narrative holes that are in it, and and it's a very homophobic film. I know Friedkin talks at length, and I think that he's exhausted at this point talking about how he didn't intend to make a homophobic film, and it's just an error in it. So I've always had problems with the film. I think the time capsule, it's particularly fascinating and in in some ways has grown in importance. And it's it's really interesting when you, or when I've talked to men particularly of a certain age, I mean, I'm 38, so I think pretty much men who are in their mid-30s and older have a very negative or complicated relationship with that film. And a lot of younger gay men seem to really appreciate it from a, like, nostalgia perspective that's almost fetishizing of the 1970s or, or a pre-AIDS era. And, you know, we're at a place now with gay rights that, that all of those things that were hurtful or, or, or potentially setting back the movement in nineteen eighty. Are things that for a lot of younger guys don't even really resonate anymore. They're more of just sort of an intellectual exercise, I think. And and for them, for not not all of them obviously, but for a lot of them, it's been clear to me that there's just this this continued fascination with pre-AIDS, 1970s, and that I mean, that's been something that's been really interesting for me to to understand more fully. I mean, one thing that I that I do really give preteen credit for. Are these bar scenes in the film that are that are a little divorced from the movie itself? That he shot in very much like a docufiction, which clearly we did with our film as well. And there's real patrons and real venues, and and the way that Freak directed those bar scenes were very much like him encouraging the patrons to do whatever they would normally do to so drink, smoke, have sex, and just dance and do whatever they would normally do. So when you see those scenes. The way that I look at them now is is it's a pretty interesting and important time capsule of this moment just on the eve of AIDS that, that doesn't really get its fair shake and I feel like the rest of the movie, because of the problems that are that are readily apparent, kind of eclipse that as a as a document of the time.
0: When it came to kind of recreating these scenes how did you come about what was in them? Did you kind of make them up wholesale, or did you kind of did you do research as far as what was gone? How did that occur?
4: You know, there were
11: different stages of trying to sort out which which scenes we were going to recreate. And initially, I wanted to be fairly true to the film in terms of the places where I felt that there were narrative gaps. It could be interesting to you know reimagine what 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 was there between point A and point C, but the problem was the movie is cruising is one which not a lot of younger people have seen, and then the people who have seen it, for most people, it's been quite a while since they've seen it. So if I if I was doing a nod to anything that was like a particular narrative gap in the original film, I mean narrative gap in my mind. Um, I think it would get lost on 99.5% of the population that watched our movie. So then it became more about really being true to the milieu of the the leather bar scenes that are represented in the original Cruising. And then from there, trying to play with that space and basically do our own thing in the service of Val's character. And, you know, I, I knew that we wanted to have a scene that involved explicit gay sex and also involved Val that was different from the original Cruising. When I say different, I mean different in that it was something that actually showed a level of intimacy and humanity that Val and his character were surprised by. And, I mean, that's something that's absent from the original film and, in fact, kind of takes a a totally different turn midway into it where Pacino, you know, it's it's almost as if he he was traumatized by what he saw and then went dark and potentially became the murderer in the end of the film. And with ours, I wanted it to be quite the opposite. And for that to be something of a compare and contrast that James had talked about originally when we we discussed what we might do.
0: How did you come by the cast? And then also, was there a problem kind of trying to telegraph to them what importance cruising had?
11: There wasn't a lot of time that that we spent really making sure they understood the importance of cruising because they didn't really need to know. I mean, Val is a different situation. I'm talking about the people in the film that, you know, we would normally call the extras, I guess. But in terms of casting, um, you know, it came from a few different ways. I mean, Val came to us through James and through, you know, his his existing friendship with Val and the fact that Val looks a fair amount like Al Pacino. So it, I mean, that was certainly helpful. Some of the other guys were people I'd worked with in the past or friends of friends of people I'd worked with in the past, where because you know my work is available to look at. So so it was it was kind of a quick. It was a, it was a lucky break, and then I I had enough work for people to look at that that a lot of these guys could could make a judgment call pretty quickly if they wanted to be involved in a project that I was doing or not. But I would say most of the men are in the film, most of the extras came to us through a casting call through Playhouse West, which was the place that James initially started acting in Hollywood, and. The casting call was just for, like, gay leather bar scene involving, like, a James Franco production. That's all they knew when they came in. There were probably around 50 guys, and James wasn't there at the time, but I was, the, I was there for the casting call. And I basically described the minimal amount of what was going into our project that I felt was important for them to know if they wanted to get involved. And then there was a lot that I wanted to leave open-ended because... As you know, if you watch the film, there's a fair amount of kind of like free-floating anxiety with the whole project in general. And there are a number of reasons why I wanted to leave it like that. But one one that I'm thinking of now that I actually don't get to speak to very often is, in and of itself, kind of an homage to cruising. And then, in a larger sense, so many of these character-driven films that came out in the 70s, these American character-driven films that were were very sort of anxious and paranoid. And that was something that, that I wanted to tap into in a very real way um, on the set as well. And I wanted the extras alongside Val to be figuring things out. And part of that reason is because that sort of padding would be useful in in helping to support Val's arc throughout the whole film, which is his journey in figuring things out.
0: So the film is credited to you and James Franco. Did you guys kind of work hand in hand? Was there a clear division in terms of scenes or segments that you guys divided up amongst yourselves?
11: We worked hand in hand. I mean, I, I had concerns going into it, like how that would actually function in a very practical sense. Um, because you
0: hadn't worked with the co-director before, right?
11: I have not worked with a co-director before. And, you know, James and I hadn't really spent enough time together going into the shoot for me to know how involved or how much of a, a leading role he was going to, to take over the course of the day so I mean that was something that was something that we felt out with each other pretty quickly and like I said, you know we got we got along so well and we're on the same page with so many things that thankfully it was a pretty easy. Experience in terms of figuring out who was doing what, and I mean, one of the the looking back, one of the kind of cute things with the production was he brought he brought his most intimate production people that he works with on his smaller projects, and then I did the same, and we were kind of like a Brady Bunch family getting together, and and all of us worked really easily together, and we of the same like temperament and everything, so that that worked out great.
0: The thing I like about the movie is that. You know you're kind of using cruising as like this backbone almost, but then you're speaking to such larger issues and going so much far beyond that and just using that as kind of you know your sounding board almost
11: I mean that was our intention from the beginning, and I think you know when when news came out of us doing this project at first, I mean part of the confusion for for so many months that we were trying to pull ourselves out from was at first. It was talked about as if we were doing a remake of Cruising. And then it was talked about that the film was just going to be these 40 minutes, these reimagined 40 minutes. And, I mean, to be fair, you know, our movie is so unorthodox in so many ways that I think that even people who who read an accurate synopsis of what we're doing um, are surprised by what it actually is. And, um, you know, it's been been for people... people fall in pretty extreme camps with with how they respond to that and i got to say like you know at times it's been, it's been kind of a roller coaster for me personally with that but all in all i mean i don't think i would have it any other way we very much stuck to our guns with what we wanted to do we're proud of the film and um i wouldn't want to, i don't think i would want to make a film that was received in kind of a tepid way
0: yeah i read at least one of the reviews and it just seemed like, boy, they're just not getting it, you know?
11: Yeah, right, Variety was kind of voracious and, and, and ruthless. But in the New York Times, you know, it was like the complete opposite of that. So it depends so much on, I mean, you could say this with any film, but it depends so much on the viewer going in to the movie and what they're anticipating. And also, I think to some degree, what their relationship is to Franco, because... I think a lot of, I mean, one of the things that James and I talked about as we were going into this was that there was probably going to be pushback for not just this film, but the accumulation of films that he's done in recent memory that involve gay content. You know, I mean, it played out in just that way.
0: Did you guys ever consider turning it into a feature?
11: To go back to your original question, this was originally conceived as a project that was going to be handed over. Um, So James was asked with um, this boutique in New York called Costume National. They had asked him to submit a few short films that would basically be looping in their boutique that was going to be turned into a gallery for Fashion Week. And originally, that's what this was. That was sort of like the beginning, middle, event, and end of what this was conceived as. And I had always... I mean mostly kind of keeping it to myself because I mean I think I think everyone would have thought that I was reaching a little bit too high in the sky at the time but I I had always hoped that we had crafted something that was going to be long enough to be an actual feature and I mean it is a feature it's not psychologically a feature for people I think but 60 minutes is technically a feature which is great, but you know, it, it is, I mean, I won't pretend that it's not frustrating that the film isn't even 75 minutes because that's, that's a whole, that's a different experience for an audience, which would have made it much easier for us to get like a wider, um, a wider theatrical than, than the one that we are getting.
0: It's a strange length to me.
11: It is a strange length. I mean, I didn't, I didn't set out to make a film that was 60 minutes. I mean, the first cut that we had of it was around 90 minutes. But there was so much that it was just it just felt like it would it would have been filler. You know, it, it's as a filmmaker it's a tough call because the fact that there was enough content in it that was good and the fact that James was in it and it's a provocative film. You know, I could have cut a film that was almost ninety minutes that would have had a much different life to it, but I think I think it would have been a much inferior film and um, you know, that's just the call that had to be made.
0: What are you working on now, or what's going to be next for you?
11: Well, I mean, I probably shouldn't say too much because it's very, it's very in flux right now. There's two projects I've been devoting a lot of time to over the past year, and I'm trying to be careful about what my next project is. Not, not careful in so much a like strategic way, but more of like this past year, the past two years has been. A bit of a intense roller coaster experience for me, and I really want my next project to be something that that feels expansive and, and joyous and so I'm trying to sort out with between these two projects which one is going to best retain a sense of me while also achieving that
0: okay and one more question, and this one's kind of a dumb one. Is the hanky thing still valid?
11: I think it's um i mean there's a I know that there are Guys in their twenties who kind of engage in it. I think again, more in a fetish, fetishizing of the '70s kind of way. I don't know how much it's actually used in a just regular kind of sense, but I imagine in the in the very few leather bars that remain, that 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 people still use it. I mean, it's certainly not the way it once was.
0: Is it a requirement that a leather bar be called something
7: like an eagle? <laughs>
11: I don't know, but I've often thought that somebody should do a documentary just on, like, the eagles of the world, because I, I, almost every city I've been in has had an eagle in it, and almost all of them are some variation of the same bar. It's
0: like the Moose Lodge, but different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're back, and we're talking about cruising and the docufiction interior leather bar. So, Rob, what are your thoughts about the film?
6: You know, we talked a little bit about all the various aspects of it, but one thing that I wanted to ask um, Jeffrey on this is that you said that you would like people— to uh, check out the film. Do you think that it is something that um, has gotten better with age that uh, people in the gay community can, I don't want to say embrace, because I don't think you can embrace it, but um, it's not as, uh, I guess, caustic as it was when it was first created? Yeah,
7: I mean, I think you really can look at it now in a weird way as a time capsule. If you just sort of strip away the plot and the confusing murder mystery elements and you know the fact that it really ultimately it really doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense but i love watching it i can watch it over and over again because it really does feel like you're in that moment of time you know and those bar scenes feel so real to me in a way that most hollywood movies of the time don't you know usually when you go into a gay bar in a hollywood movie they usually get it wrong what are you
2: looking at you peckerhead nice uniform makes me wish i'd worn my sailor outfit
7: but in this case, it really has this documentary feel to it, and especially because it's a, a pre-AIDS movie, and a lot of that commu- that that environment, those environments were wiped out. Those people, I would say, when I look at those shots, those sort of panning shots that go across the crowd, I just have to wonder how many of those people are, are, are gone. You know, so it, it really just really serves as a as a time capsule, and a lot of the controversy over it is is. It's not the same movie that it was in nineteen eighty because there's been so much progress in gay and lesbian representation since then, so I think you can look at it in a completely different way, you know, but I think that the the underlying message of the movie it's kind of still there it still has this really icky feeling i can't i i am fascinated with it and I'm repelled by it at the same time, and I feel like that's going to be the response of a lot of people you know because it's just a really unpleasant movie to watch.
6: In it being unpleasant, does that necessarily mean it's a bad thing? Because no, you
7: know, not at all. It, it keeps. I keep coming back to it for some reason, you know. And uh, I, 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 don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't get any better as a, a, a movie with a plot. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But I get more and more impressed with it as as images are so much more sanitized now. Particularly images, Hollywood movies about gay characters are so sanitized that there's something kind of refreshing about how unpleasant this movie is that this would never pass muster you know glad would shut this thing down in a heartbeat you know but i'm kind of more attracted to the outlaw aspects of gay culture anyway and this movie it, it, it i don't i wouldn't say that it celebrates those but it definitely shines a light on them and in a way legitimizes it because here we have we're having a movie with a major movie star and he's going into this world, and it's sort of a clash of cultures. And, and in a lot of the ways, that what's good about the movie is, in a way, unintentional. You know, that the documentary aspects are are there. I don't know, walking down that street with uh, Al Pacino, I, I just feel, I can smell that the air in New York. I can smell that that Chelsea air. I can smell the Greenwich Village air. I can smell the garbage trucks going by. So there's a lot of things about that movie that are really that really hold up. I don't think it's so much the murder mystery or the plot because that doesn't get any – it gets more confusing as time goes on. The
0: thing that always gets me at the very end of Cruising, when he is shaving, it seems to be such a big ritual going on that he is shaving. Like he's kind of saying goodbye to the past and everything. I so think that his character should have grown out one of these kind of Tom of Finland mustaches, you know, just to have something to be shaving off – and to affect even more of this kind of look that a lot of the gay guys have in this movie, I mean, there are so many mustache men in this movie, and I think that would have been even more effective had he, you know, fit into the culture even more to do that.
7: I mean, there's so many different ways this movie could have ended. I mean, what if uh, what if he had actually gone into this world? Uh, realized his true nature and not tried to fight it, solved the crime, and it had a happy ending, and he gets a boyfriend at the end. <laughs> That'd be a whole different movie. <laughs> That's the movie that, you know, I-, I talked to Armistead Maupin, who wrote the Tales of the City books, and he told me that he had met with uh, Freakin about this. I had a conversation with Freakin, and Freakin had asked him, why, you know, what, what can I do to make sure that this is a balanced portrayal? And uh, I think Mar- Armistead Maupin suggested that he had – that you have another gay character like a gay cop or that his partner would be a gay cop to kind of balance out the prurient uh, aspects of the movie with just sort of the, the regular gay guy and freaking uh, clearly didn't take any of his advice. And the one gay character in the movie who, like you were saying uh, before, Rob, the, the sort of normal every every gay even he gets off in the end. So the movie what the movie's kind of saying that that this quote, this quote-unquote lifestyle is can't end well for anybody. I, I really can understand why the protests were so uh violent at the time cuz it really does feel like the filmmakers are making a a judgment call.
0: Yeah, there is a lot of people kind of going back and looking at this movie again and uh even though there's there's that aspect to it. There's a lot of kind of revisionism going on. And then also to Rob's point, there are a lot of people that have no idea what this movie is. So when Interior Leather Bar starts and they start talking to these actors and asking them, you know, have you seen Cruising? We're kind of doing this project. And before you kind of get what is going on in the film and all these actors are like, no, I've never heard of it. Oh, da, 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 da. I just, I I was just, incensed especially where it's like you know come on you you guys are part of the movies why have you never heard of this movie it's the whole thing that we've talked about on the show before where it's like so many people that are in the business have no idea what the business is even about they've never watched a movie before 1985 or whatever it's like please just yeah and so i was so glad when that kind of wasn't true as interior leather bar was going on
7: I think a lot more people know about cruising now after Interior Leather Bar has come out than did before. I really do. I mean it, that movie has really – because it premiered at Sundance and it's got the James Franco name and it's got a, a, a cachet to it. A lot of people who would have no idea of the, the the context of it now know what the context is. I mean I'd like for more people to see cruising now. I don't. I think it, it, it's it's had so many different lives. You know, when I first saw it, when I was living in San Francisco working on the Silent Closet, there was a revival of it. This was in uh, 93, 94. And there were still people passing out flyers outside the theater saying this movie will literally murder people. And so the, the feelings were still really raw at that time. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if you know that there was – after the movie came out at one of the bars that they filmed at, the Ramrod – this guy, uh, this unbalanced guy, uh, pulled up outside the ramrod and uh, sprayed the crowd with a with a submachine gun, and he killed he killed two people and he wounded a bunch of other people. And this was right after Cruising came out, so all the things that the gay community was saying at the time that you know this movie is going to cause violence, you know, in this case it probably didn't because this guy who was the killer, this guy was Ronald Crumpley. He was a a minister's son, father of three, and Dealing with some really insane views about homosexuals. He said he, had, he was suffering from paranoid delusions. He said gay men were agents of the devil. They were trying, they were stalking him, they were trying to steal his soul. And so this guy actually acted out on these paranoid fantasies so it 's it's, it's interesting you know that um, this guy um, is actually in a weird way a, a real life cruising story you know because he was a guy who hated himself or what he was and he went out and he tried to destroy it in a, and ended up killing a bunch of people he 's still in jail he 's actually uh, as far as i know he 's still uh, in a mental hospital he was found not guilty by reason of insanity
0: you know not only have I watched a lot of gay porn for this episode but also watch a lot of Sex is Dangerous movies as well. I finally checked out Looking for Mr. Good Bar, which I had never seen before. And I also watched the film uh, Lipstick and I watched Windows. So those were pretty interesting to see in comparison to Cruising. I mean, I you know, there's a lot of differences, obviously, but I think pretty much Almost all of them have the same kind of message that was coming out in the mid to late 70s, early 80s with cruising, that sex is really a dangerous thing. I think these were very reactionary to the whole free love movement. And I think that um, seeing a double feature of cruising and windows where you kind of get the uh, the gay side of things and then the lesbian side of things, but I'll talk about another kind of confusing and fairly awful film,
6: <laughs> yeah, when nobody
7: saw windows either i don 't think that got nearly the amount of controversy or press that cruising did it 's uh Talia Shire is being terrorized by her lesbian neighbor, yeah, and
0: the lesbian neighbor is so obsessed with her that she hires this cab driver to rape Talia Shire and audio record everything. And if you find out very, very early in the film that this has happened because we see the uh, neighbor with the, uh, the the audio recording and her listening to it and just kind of getting hot and bothered over all of it. And yeah, just some weird shit going on in this movie, man. It was just I, I can't say that I enjoyed it, but it was a little interesting, especially the end with the uh, the confrontation between the two women.
7: It's very similar shots even to Cruising. There's a shot of Elizabeth Ashley threatening Talia Shire with a knife and holding it up to her face. And it's almost an identical shot as in Cruising. And in the Soy Lead Closet documentary, those two shots are kind of side by side. And they, those things did come out at the same time. It's true that uh, when when gay people started coming out and becoming visible, it was a real threat. The images started becoming darker. That We weren't just the comic relief anymore. We were actually a, 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 a threat to the natural natural order of things. These movies are an example of that. Well,
0: and just like with cruising, where you know basically being around all these gay people is corrupting the Al Pacino character, it's another kind of thing where Elizabeth Ashley thinks that she can kind of convert Talia Shire to lesbianism, maybe by getting her raped and then showing uh, Talia Shire that she really cares for her and that you know what she needs is this you know woman's touch rather than these awful men that are around her all the time.
7: Yeah, it's about the the old kill him or cure him uh, rule of gay people in in the movies, and uh, or the the vampire theory that uh, of of homosexuality that it only takes some creepy gay guy to convert an, another gay guy, and so because they can't reproduce, they have to uh, convert each other. So, and that's that's a myth that is one of the oldest myths in the book. Anita Bryant used that in her anti-gay campaign, and you still hear that kind of stuff today, in all these uh, wingnut anti-gay campaigns. Uh, trying to prevent gay adoption uh, to prevent gay marriage you know that one of the arguments against gay marriage is that uh, gay people can't reproduce so what's the point you know the only way they can reproduce is to uh, get their claws on on some unsuspecting heterosexual and turn them into a homosexual so a lot of people still believe that and a lot of these movies do like cruising uh, foster that idea.
0: Well, yeah, it's the whole idea of you know um, the cycle of abuse becomes now the cycle of gayness. The cycle of gayness. Yes. <laughs> you pass it down from one generation to another. That's why all gay men are child molesters. Didn't you
7: know that? Well, there's a movie called Boys Beware. Have you ever seen Boys Beware? I have not. It's no. a nineteen early sixties scare movie from a a police department and it's uh about these kids who uh, it's basically a warning to kids to stay away from creepy guys in the men's room and uh, it's it's one of these movies that you know I was definitely too young to have seen this when it was out, but I can imagine it being shown in classrooms and it just scaring the crap out of any gay kid in that classroom because it implies that gay people are going to come after you, they're going to convert you, or they're going to actually kill you. And there's a really creepy shot of the. The older gay guy, uh, first he takes the, the kid out fishing, and they're hanging out. He gives them some candy. They're hanging out, and he, sh- he shows them some porno pictures. And these are the kind of images that um, that are still in, – in a way, people still buy into that. And uh, gay people are – even though it's – I mean it's it feels like in the big cities, it feels like it's so mainstream and it's still, still so accepted – there's still these really deep pockets of homophobia in this country, like uh, the Duck Dynasty guy coming out. I mean, what a big shocker that, that he's a secret homophobe, you know? I mean, you, you scratch the surface and you're going to find some really reactionary points of view.
6: Isn't it true that you all have horns and you run the world from a secret bunker five miles into the Earth? No, core?
7: Rob, Rob, those are the Jews.
6: Those are oh, the Jews. I always get those confused. <laughs>
0: the the it's short that you're talking about. The scare film reminds me a lot of that Different Strokes episode.
6: Yeah,
7: with Dudley. Yeah. Yes, I
0: remember that one. Whew, man, that scared the it's bejesus creepy. out of me. I,
7: I do think – I mean that's a lot of what Vito Russo was talking about, You know, that these images that really burn into people's psyches, that this is how you this, – this is how we learn how to feel about ourselves. is from watching movies. I mean, everybody learns how to be a human being from the movies. You learn how to behave. You learn how to think, and you learn how to act from the movies that you see. And if all the movies are telling you that gay people are sick or demented or frivolous or um, or out there trying to you know convert you, you that, some of that is going to sink in. I mean actually I remember seeing Boys in the Band for the first time when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 on a late night uh, – it was called the, the Channel 5 Movie Club. And they would get people to pick their own movies, the movie of choice they would show at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. Somebody picked Boys in the Band. And it was like it's actually filmed a lot like a horror movie, you know. As the night goes on in that movie, and the gay guys are getting drunker and more vicious and mean to each other, it's it's a, kind of a nightmare. And I was really scared of of uh, of th- those those images for a long, long, long time. So now I kind of love that movie. I've seen it in a completely different way. But I can see how something like cruising would really traumatize a young gay person who is just coming out or not out yet. Uh, actually, the writer of Philadelphia Ron Neiswananer, in the Like closet, he talks about getting uh, gay bashed right at the time that cruising came out, and uh, that the gay bashers actually said to him, "If you saw cruising, you know you deserve this you know or something like that so you know there 's like anecdotal evidence that that movie actually did uh, create an impression that uh, the, the gay people are are really sick and twisted and dirty and all that stuff you know. So, you know, like we've talked about, I can see why though I can understand the protests at the time. you know now it, you can look at it from a a first point of view, a different point of view, but I still know people of that generation, people in their you know in their fifties and sixties who were around when that movie first came out, and they loathe it, they loathe it, they will never forgive it and uh, a lot of the people I interviewed uh, about Vito Russo, we did talk about cruising a lot, and they're uh like my friend Mark Thompson, who's a a writer. A gay writer and a journalist. I mean he's he's he still has a real venomous feeling toward that movie and he'll never forgive it.
0: I can see that. I mean I can also see people doing a revival of it and dressing up in the parts and you know, everybody chanting Hips or Lips at the right part.
7: Yeah. Know. Oh my god, I saw a double bill of cruising in Windows at the Cinema family here in, in LA and it was a riot and people were going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a completely different it's a completely different movie. It's lost its ability to I think it's still a transgressive and a and points a shocking movie. The murder scenes are really brutal and, and disturb, still really disturbing. But there's a lot of it that's really anachronistic and, and kind of funny. I mean, I love the scene where Al Pacino's doing poppers and going in and, and uh, learning what the hanky code is and all that stuff. It's it there is some funny stuff in that movie. But overall, it's a pretty unpleasant watch.
0: All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview. For next week's show.
5: Have you ever seen an orgy? An orgy of the dead? If not, let us show you a few scenes from our own Orgy of the Dead. Join the Master of the Dead and his equally infamous Princess of Darkness as they judge the beautiful Gold Girl and her sister companions. See, the Indian girl who tossed her lovers into fires and now must dance with fire. See, the bride who murdered her husband and now must dance perpetually before his skeleton. See, the curvaceous streetwalker. walker. See, the Hawaiian girl who loved snakes and now must entice them forever with her snake-like movements that will also thrill you forever. See, the zombie in her macabre dance. See the slave girl who was once a cruel queen and now, in turn, is abused by her subjects as she is forced to entertain them for eternity. See the voluptuous cat girl as she reacts to the whips of pleasure. See the skull ritual, a beautiful senorita, as she quenches her irresistible thirst from her lover's skull. See A woman who in life loved her own body, but now must exhibit herself to please all, including you. See, The gold girl who worshipped gold above all else. Her reward is complete transformation into solid gold. Shocking, terrifying, bizarre, and thrilling. Why don't you join us? Join the Orgy of the Dead, coming to you in flaming color and widescreen soon.
6: That's right, we're back next week with a movie that dares to ask audiences Are you a heterosexual? Filmed in Astrovision and Sexy Color, we're discussing Orgy of the Dead with Jordan. Tatteroff, the director of a documentary, Dad Made Dirty Movies, a new film about the life and career of Stephen C. Apostoloff, better known as A.C. Stephen. And we want to thank this week's special guests, Travis Matthews, Don Scardino, and Randy Jorgensen for being on the show. We also want to thank this week's special co-host, Jeffrey Swartz, for joining us. And Jeff, last time you were on, you were talking about I Am Divine, and we have that episode. You can go to projection-booth.com and you can find that. What have you been working on lately, sir?
7: Well, I Am Divine comes out on video, di- on demand, and DVD, very, very, very soon from Wolf Video. Um, we're going to announce our dates any day now. And I've been filming and just starting to edit uh, a new documentary called Tab Hunter Confidential about the life of closeted 1950s movie t- heartthrob Tab Hunter. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll have that out maybe by the end of the year.
0: Well, cool. Keep us up to date on that, and we'll let uh, everybody know where they can go to find out more about that. If you're doing the Kickstarter and everybody is, we'll let folks know about that, and they can go out and give you a couple bucks.
7: Oh, please, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Not another one.
0: Wouldn't it be nice if there were just funding for the arts that you could take advantage of?
7: Yeah, what a novelty. Other countries seem to have figured that out, but
0: uh, that all went away. Yeah, well, it's all because that money just went to these horrible degenerate art, you know, that all these homosexuals are making. So we don't want that.
7: That's the best kind of art. (laughs) Well, thanks for doing everything that you guys do. I'm, I'm a big fan of what you guys do. And, uh, I hope that this episode, uh, makes people want to go out and see Cruising. I'd love to hear what people think of it if they haven't seen it before and what their reactions are to it.
0: Well, thanks again for coming on to the show. We always appreciate talking to you. We're going to have to figure out the next movie to do. Hopefully, uh, something a little bit more happy and upbeat. Maybe You Can't Stop the Music. That would definitely put a disco swing in my step. So, be sure to head on over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave us a review and some stars. This is for the people at home. I'm not telling you this directly, Jeff. And if you haven't downloaded our free app and you can do this if you want to jeff go over to your kindle fire or your smartphone or whatever and and go to the uh your your google play store or the itunes store you know if you haven't downloaded it yet i just have one question for you what are you waiting for
2: They sink the steel Build! A coat of steel and a flash of light. Screams from a streak of fire as he strikes. Help and, help and forever. Help and, help and forever. Black as night, faster than a shadow. Turns the flare from a raging sun. An exhibition. Ship position, yet no one knows from where he comes.
5: This Thursday at 9, watch for the SCTV premiere of the Cruisin' Gourmet.
4: Okay, how you doing? Uh, today, the gourmet is going to teach you how to stuff a turkey, okay? Uh, what you do, first of all, is uh, tenderize it What is? Now the bird is tender. Now what you got to do is make sure the bird is dead with this. Hey,
9: you dead? Huh? Hey, you dead?
4: Huh?
9: Huh?
8: Huh? The bird is
4: dead. Now we're going to stop the bird.
6: Yeah, that's good, huh? What's your preference, beaks or cheeks, huh?
2: the goes away. He's got a heart of gold, a platinum soul. And the never shows his face. I've heard stories of your midnight moves. I've seen pictures of you making love. Well, I'm ready to fight and I'm good at that. When I close my eyes, I see blood. When I close my eyes, I see blood. When I close my eyes, I see blood. Watch it when you see me come. I don't take no shit where I come from Please don't apologize The damage just done, you better dry your eyes Well, it hurt me so bad, I was down on my knees I didn't even know the way up I went to your mama, your mama said, boy I think you're just out of luck I'm gonna go to your boyfriend and smash his face I will do this punch and break him up Cause I won't have you talking to your boy like that when I, eyes, I when I close my eyes, i see blood When I close my eyes, i see blood When I close my eyes, i see blood Watch it when you see me come I don't take no shit where I come from Please don't apologize The damage is done, you better try your. Two
1: syllables in this whole wide world worthier.
3: Your... Hua.